0: Okay, welcome to episode one of the Chris and Paul Show, where we discuss all things muscle physiology and hypertrophy related. Uh, I am here with my buddy, colleague, uh, friend and pal, uh, Chris Musely, uh the king of hypertrophy and the best guy in the business when it comes to muscle physiology. Did I gas you up enough to open the, the show there, Chris?
1: That's a great introduction, Paul. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be okay. here. Okay.
0: so. Today, uh, first off number one, I'm excited about doing this with you. And I, I love that we can get into this and actually discuss this in a very like organic and fun and authentic way because you and I have some really good um off-topic like conversations where we're not doing like the educational portal stuff where we get to kind of BS and free-flow it. And that's what we're gonna do today. So I think it's gonna be a lot of fun and interesting. And the topic for today, episode one, we're gonna cover is stretch-mediated hypertrophy, you know, kind of lay the groundwork uh, because this gets talked about a lot on social. I know you see that. Um, And there's this overarching theme right now that's kind of permeating throughout the landscape of uh, the evidence-based community and social media and the fitness spaces to talk about. All, there's this, the, the quote I see most common is there's a building body of evidence that says all muscles grow better at longer lengths. I know that behind the scenes that drives both of us kind of crazy because it's actually uh not really a true statement. We're gonna kind of go over uh why that the a lot of the evidence that says that these muscles are growing at longer lengths, uh it's not really showing that and that there are muscles that do grow at long better at longer lengths, and there's some muscles that don't, why that is, why that is, why isn't, and kind of the kind of the over the encompassing theme as to all the mechanisms behind why that happens. So Um, You have, you sent me um, a list, um, kind of how we're going to go through um, the topics, because what we want to do here is we want to lay the groundwork um, for what stretch mediated mediated hypertrophy is. I have to be able to talk this morning. So what it is, um, you know, what causes it, um, you know, how long does it happen? Uh, why it differs between muscles, um, which muscles experience and which muscles do not. The, the two that we're really going to cover today, uh, more in depth, will be the biceps and triceps. So um, that way I don't end up talking too much like I usually do. Uh, well, let's start off and kind of lay, we'll, we'll, we'll start with the whole groundwork thing. So what is stretch-mediated hypertrophy? And whenever I hear that, the term I think of that you have in our notes here is genesis.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So um, I think uh, to start with, we have to kind of define the, you know, sort of the terminology that we're using. And I think a lot of people, when they say stretch mediated hypertrophy, they're kind of referring to extra hypertrophy that happens when we train a muscle in a stretch position, which, you know, fine. I think that's a good starting, a good starting point for the discussion. But I think we can be more precise. And I think we can also say you know, uh, more about what's going on because what we generally tend to see is that when we train muscles in stretch positions or if we use other scenarios when muscles are experiencing passive tension, then we do tend to see it that the, the extra hypertrophy isn't coming from the same kind of source. It's not coming from the same type of hypertrophy as we tend to get uh, when we're training in sort of uh, more moderate muscle lengths. We tend to find that, Uh, or just with active tension for example so concentric only contractions we tend to find that when we're training with these concentric only contractions or uh, isometrics at short lengths or just through a a partial range of motion at a a short to moderate muscle length it tends to be just from an increase in muscle fiber diameter muscle fiber cross-sectional area um, and and that's occurring because of an addition of myofibrils. In parallel. But when we add the passive tension on top, what we tend to find is that the additional hypertrophy is actually coming from an addition of sarcomeres in series. So I think it's really, really important for us to you know, add this concept into the mix and say, when we're adding this uh, kind of passive tension on top of the active tension we've already got, what uh, we're getting is not just more of the same, um, but it's something else on top of what we're already generating. It's uh, addition of sarcomeres in addition to the addition of myofibrils.
0: Yeah, that that right there is is the really important part. So there's there's sarcomere genesis and there's myofibril genesis, and so there's we're talking about adding sarcomeres in series or in parallel. So those particular hypertrophy outcomes happen via different muscle links or contraction types, and that's the part that. Kind of, uh, I think frustrates you and I is when we look at some of these studies that come out. And we'll, our, the first question we'll ask each other is, did they measure fascicle length? <laughs> and so, when somebody will say this muscle grew better or longer, longer length, the first thing that I do when I get one of those new studies that comes out is I go and like, look to see what they did for measurements. And it's really important to people understand if we don't, if they don't measure fascicle length, they can't definitively say that a muscle grew or or that it, that it grew from, from that longer muscle.
1: I think that's really, um, you know, the measurement of fascicle length is a really critical thing. Absolutely. I think that's, that's really what we're looking for. If we can see that, uh, um, you know, the stretch position, for example, has caused an increase in fascicle length and the contract position has not, I think that's a really, really good sign that what we're dealing with there is genuine stretch mediated hypertrophy occurring in the stretched, position exercise. Um, You know, obviously, that would, as you say, that would be what we would look for. And, you know, um, that's what we do do. When we look at studies, we try and find out if there's any uh, kind of increase in fascicle length, or even if that particular muscle has ever experienced increases in fascicle length in other studies. I mean, it's a really kind of uh, sort of basic requirement that we, uh, you know, we're interested in. Um, But I think really, you know, kind of moving this forward, I think you mentioned that there's different types of training that produce these uh, two different adaptions, the myofibular addition versus the sarcomerogenesis. I think it's uh, useful just to take a step further and look at the detail of what's going on there, because essentially those different types of training are allowing different types of mechanical tension. So when we're talking about a contraction at a short muscle length, maybe an isometric to short muscle length or some partial range of or concentric only training types. Uh, what we're talking about there is essentially the only or the primary uh, kind of mechanical tension is actually active mechanical tension generated by cross bridge formation. That's the only real way the muscle fiber is able to produce that tension. In contrast when we're talking about um a stretched position isometric or an eccentric contraction or whatever it may be that we're interested in uh, what we're talking about there is that the mechanical tension is actually coming from two sources it's not just coming from crossbridge formation it's also coming from titan and so obviously what titan is doing there is it's uh being elongated and as a result of certain conditions maybe uh if the muscle fiber is activated so we're talking about this eccentric contraction or this isometric to long length what's going to happen is that the titan's stiff segment is going to be stretched because the compliant segment is going to be locked down and we're going to find that that titan uh, kind of starts to produce higher forces as it's elongated which it won't do at the short muscle length it's not going to do that so generally speaking we're talking about two different sources of tension and it basically is the type of tension that determines the type of hypertrophy. So if we see active tension from um, the cross formation, we're just getting uh, myofibrillar addition. If we're seeing passive tension being generated by the stretching of the stiff segment of titan, we're going to get sarcomerogenesis. And I think really that's the critical thing that we have to come back to is to say, what's the nature of the tension? And is that then going to generate the you know particular adaption that we're interested in?
0: Yeah. And- I also want to, I'm going to come back to these and people can, when they listen to this, they can go through these so that way they don't think we're just like making this up and this is the abracadabra stuff. So the actual, um, it's, it's a very well-known thing, actually, going back a lot of years, the different contraction modes um, create different types of hypertrophy adaptations and outcomes. So for skeletal muscle myosin cross-bridge cycling is necessary for genesis. So, this this is a, a study goes back to uh, 2003 um, that talks about the fact that you know a that uh, the the, the uh, cross bridging between actin and myosin is what gives us muscle gives us a greater increase in cross sectional area um, and then we have another one that looks at uh, stretching uh, skeletal muscle chronic muscle lengthening through sarcomere this is another study that looks at hey. These these um, occurs from longer muscle length training and eccentric contractions. Uh, another one, a skeletal a skeletal muscle remodeling in response to eccentric versus concentric loading, morphological, molecular, and metabolic adaptations. So, there's actually if somebody just wants to go look for it, they will find tons of research that talks about the fact that if you're gonna if you're gonna get longitudinal hypertrophy, which is related to eccentric contractions or a longer muscle length, that's the type of adaptations that occur when we talk about stretch mediated hypertrophy. So when we talk about actually increasing the cross-sectional area, the kind of contractions or the muscle length we're talking about is concentric contractions or shorter muscle length, basically kind of like a mid-range to short muscle length. And so the hypertrophy outcomes are quite different based on the type of length we're training the muscle at and the contraction mode that we're talking about. So those are really, really important facets in all of this. Um, that are well documented. It's not just like stuff that you know has been made up you know by us to for whatever reason. but these are actually well documented um, adaptation outcomes that we expect to see based on contraction of muscle.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And just kind of building on what you just said there, we can absolutely take these different types of training and do a kind of a rough estimate of how much passive tension we think might be involved in them across the whole muscle. And we can kind of put them in an order and we can see that if we start off with the types of training that have the smallest amounts of passive tension or even no passive tension at all, we don't see any kind of genesis occurring. You know, we do isometrics at short muscle lengths or we do, you know, concentric only training. We don't see any sarcomerogenesis happening from that at all. And you kind of progress through to exercises or types of training that have a little bit more passive tension in them, maybe some kind of. Uh, full range of motion normal strength training you're going to see some sarcomerogenesis happening it's going to be a lot less than the amount of uh, myofibrillar addition but you're going to see some of it and then if you progress more towards the eccentric training types you're going to see even more of that sarcomerogenesis and actually one of the really interesting factors about titan is that it's viscoelastic and not just elastic so actually it produces more force when you stretch it more quickly so if you look at the fast eccentric training studies versus the slow eccentric I'm talking about maximal effort in both cases obviously um in that situation you tend to see more uh happening from the fast eccentric compared to the slow eccentric just simply because titan is producing a higher force there's more passive tension in that scenario so essentially we can kind of just put these studies in an order according to how much passive tension we think we're going to see according to the type of training that's being done and you're going to see broadly speaking that the amount of sarcomerogenesis tracks that pretty pretty well.
0: That is going to end up making people go, so should I use fast eccentrics um, in my training to get sarcomerogenesis? However, this is actually a fairly complex, nuanced conversation about that kind of stuff, which we're we're going to tackle. We're 100% going to tackle. Um, So that actually is a pretty, pretty good segue into the third uh, uh, bullet point that you have here. And that is how long does it continue occurring now? This is the part where, when all this stuff comes up, it's also a, if people would go research fascicle link measurements during hypertrophy-based longitudinal studies, they would understand something very quickly. I'm not even going to say anything. I'm going to let you take that part. What do we generally see happen when fascicle link is measured in these longitudinal hypertrophy studies? And I don't mean just like one. I mean, I've looked at probably eight to 10 of them, and it's very similar um, if not exact, across all of these longitudinal hypertrophy studies, and we have these on hamstrings and quads and all sorts of lower body muscles. When we're doing fast-point measurements, what do we see happening?
1: Okay, so basically there's two kind of really key observations here. Firstly is that increases in muscle fascicle length are super quick. So generally speaking, they're going to happen within a couple of weeks, which is you know not impossible to see that with cross-sectional area increases we kind of can see that in some studies but generally speaking they tend to take a lot longer to uh, display increases in cross sectional areas so basically. Increases in fascicle length are really, really fast in comparison with increases in muscle cross-sectional area. So that's kind of my first uh, observation. Second observation is that they tend to start to plateau much sooner than increases in muscle cross-sectional area. So if you've got long-term studies that have taken multiple measurements over a period of several months, generally speaking, you tend to find that the first couple, first month of training really, really fast increase in basketball. And the second month or so tends to be really, really subdued in comparison with that first month. It's almost, uh, you know, sort of not really growing at all. It's really, really marked change. So you get a really fast increase early on, and then it tends to plateau relatively quickly. So really what we're looking at when we're talking about these two different types of hypertrophy is that one is happening, you know, very much at the beginning of a training program and, and kind of then plateauing quite rapidly and the other is tending to uh you know take a much more slow gradual approach to kind of increasing in size
0: yep and that's what there's um there's a couple of quad studies um and i guess i should have brought those up um people can look at those and i want to say um one showed an increase in fascicle length and then it plateaued out, and I want to say the study was it may have been eight or eight or ten weeks, but then they plateaued out and, and increased the in fascicle length at five weeks, and another one plateaued out. I want to say it, it was a twelve-week study and plateaued out at eight weeks. I'm drawing my memory, but I'm pretty sure I'm spot on with those. And I, I, You're like for those that can't see, Chrissy's not in his head. It's going to be around there, I, or it maybe it's seven weeks. But the point was the plateau out to where they didn't see any increase in fascicle length happened before the study was over. In other words, they ran up really fast, as you said. And then that was it after five to seven weeks or so. And these were all in, uh, these were in novice uh, lifters. And that's also another important factor here that we'll get to is that these increases in longitudinal uh, hypertrophy and in, in terms of like sarcomere genesis, adding sarcomeres in the series, they tend to run up really quickly, very fast. And then they plateau out somewhere five to seven weeks. Uh, there was one on hamstrings too that looked at, um, I think it was um, the was it called the, the the Nordic leg curl where you lower yourself basically to the eccentric contraction at a long muscle length for the hamstrings. And it was the same thing. It ran up very quickly and then plateaued out very fast. So the reason why that's a very important um, piece of information to look at and take into account is most likely what happens is, is that we're limited on the amount of stretch meat hypertrophy that we can get on the muscles that do benefit from it. And from there on out, most likely what we're doing with longer muscle length is just cr- training with longer muscle links and that kind of stuff in our training programs to maintain the adaptations that we've achieved, uh, from doing that. Um, I think it's also suffice to say, and you might have the research on this. I, I would, uh, I think that the any of those longitudinal uh adaptations where we get sarcomers in a series, they probably go the fastest too, right? We we see those experience uh they go away really quickly once we're in a detraining mode.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You're definitely seeing a, a very fast uh kind of adaption in both directional, you know, kind of detraining effect. So adaption then detraining effect um kind of, of, of muscle vascular. But uh, I think it's it's useful to uh just consider why this is happening. I mean, obviously, you know, it's All well and good to observe the fact that it does happen, but I think it's really interesting to consider why it might be happening. I think really what's going on is that when we add myofibrils in parallel from producing active mechanical tension through kind of muscular contractions at short to moderate. lengths. I mean, at any length, really, but fundamentally that's the only kind of tension that's happening at those at those lengths. When we do that, that addition of myofibrils isn't really going to change um, our ability to produce active mechanical tension in subsequent uh, kind of workouts. I mean, technically it increases it, although you know that uh, is a separate matter. But if we look at passive mechanical tension, if we add sarcomeres in series, what that's doing is it's actually causing um, and obviously the addition of sarcomeres into the muscle fiber means that each of the sarcomeres in that muscle fiber is now going to sit At a shorter resting length. And when it elongates, it's going to reach a shorter maximum length. And that's just a function of fitting more sarcomeres into the same muscle fiber length that you've got in the muscle. Now, when that happens, obviously, the passive tension that is being created by the titan inside each sarcomere, because that's where titan is, is going to be smaller. So, generally, what we're doing. Sorry, I don't know if you can hear, but there's a a neighbor's dog in the background barking. I I, heard him. (laughs) So um, basically what's going to happen is that the um, sarcomere is going to produce a small amount of force, passive tension, and that's going to mean that the sarcomere genesis stimulus is reduced. And that's why I think what we're seeing in terms of fascicle length adaptions over a period of strength training programs is that the amount of passive tension is being reduced every time we add a sarcomere in series. And that's why we end up in a situation where we just can't add more sarcomeres after a certain point, because we've already got uh, so many sarcomeres, we're not generating very much passive tension in each of our eccentric contractions or contractions at long muscle lengths.
0: I draw now drawing from memory. I remember I think the hamstring study that I'm referring to I actually saw an increase in fascicle length without um, an increase um, in sarcomeres in the series. I think that's the one I'm thinking of. I don't know if you remember that one by memory, but. Um, Going back, yes, to what you're saying was, is if people kind of think of this um, in terms of the adaptations that are occurring where the sarcomeres kind of get lined up on top of one another. What happens is, as you said, over time, once those adaptations have occurred, it those particular muscles just experience less passive tension due to those adaptations that are occurring. Are you trying to find, are you trying to find that hamstring study? I, think, I, I was I just know,
1: curious to see if I could see one that I'd, I got in my mind, but I think I think there are some Nordic studies that show really nice um, kind of increases and decreases in fascicle length as a result of yeah. uh, e- obviously eccentric training, which is a really good way to cause fascicle length to increase. They do tend to increase, then plateau, and then and then, as you were saying earlier, they do tend to decrease pretty rapidly once uh, once detraining sets in. Yeah.
0: yeah, and that that could lead into a whole different topic about why we would not actually choose the Nordic. Hamstring curl is a, or the Nordic curl, as I have as a good hypertrophy exercise, um, or not for any any significant period of time, but basically wrapping all of these parts up, um, that kind of I think uh, the one thing that leads us into is kind of talking about a little bit about the length tension relationship, right? So the reason why some muscles experience um, stretch mediated hypertrophy. Um, and don't let me forget to address the part that just because a muscle, so we're going to say that a muscle probably does not experience stretch, stretch mediated hypertrophy, it doesn't mean you would not get um, any um, um, muscle growth from it by training it longer with it. It just means it's not going to get that additional passive tension that we talk about um, here. So, because I don't, somebody's going to end up listening to it and, and going to say, Chris and Paul said that. You know the biceps, triceps don't grow at all from the longer muscle length. That, that's not at no point did we say that. We say there's muscles where we we have studied. For example, I think a good one to bring up, like right now and talk about is like we know the hamstrings um, benefit from longer muscle lengths. And then when we have something as simple as a using two a leg curl study, when we do one with the lying leg curl where you're in an extended hip position, so the the hamstrings are at a shorter length, and then a the seated leg curl where you're in a more flexed hip and they're the longer length, we saw significantly more. Uh, hamstring growth in the seated version where the hamstrings are being trained at a longer length. So what we're getting at is there's more passive tension that's being added on. So it's the total tension amount that those fibers are creating. So it's the, it's the active tension and it's the passive tension, which creates the total tension, which means that we're getting both what we're talking about, uh, the longitudinal hypertrophy and then myofibril additions in parallel. So it's the combination of those two.
1: Absolutely. I mean, I think that's the critical thing It's what we're saying here is that if we've got a a strength training exercise, then it's going to generate a kind of broadly um, kind of quantifiable amount of active mechanical tension, which we can say, you know, and that's broadly going to be the same um, across our you know, short muscle length position exercises and our long muscle length position exercises. I mean, we're going to get into why it's not exactly the same um, because of the principle of new mechanical matching in uh, a few minutes. But essentially, um, you know, that active mechanical tension is going to be, you know, essentially uh, broadly the same in in those scenarios. What we're adding on top in the stretch position exercise in certain situations is the addition of the passive mechanical tension, which then produces the extra kind of hypertrophy in the form of sarcogenerosis. So, yeah, when we're talking about exercise. In different kind of uh, sort of joint angles and creating short uh, muscle uh, length uh, exercises versus long muscle length exercises, you know, we're kind of saying the active mechanical tension subject to the principle of the mechanical matching is going to be broadly the same across the exercise positions, the different exercises. But um, the stretch position has the potential to add some passive tension and therefore create some sarcomerogenesis which then sits on top of the amount of myofibrillar addition that we're already getting. Definitely.
0: Yes, exactly. So to tie in the link to tension relationship here is uh and this gets confused sometimes, and I've seen this confused by a lot of people, is they will say stuff like um short muscle links produce um you know you can't produce you produce less force than short muscle links, the longer muscle links are mid-range muscle links So there's a difference between fiber length and sarcomere, and, and that's kind of an important distinction here, um, because a muscle the fiber length can be lengthen and experience lots of passive tension or may not experience any passive tension at all and that's a really really important distinction here when we're talking about stretch media hypertrophy or just hypertrophy adaptations in general is that looking at fiber length and looking at sarcomere length are two very different concepts
1: yeah absolutely and every kind of muscle is going to have uh, its own sort of unique length tension relationship. And uh, when we're talking about length tension relationships, we obviously are talking about two individual relationships that are not hugely related to each other. We're talking about the active length tension relationship, which which describes the amount of force that the cross bridges are producing. The number is just basically the number of cross bridges really. Um, And then essentially we've got the passive length tension relationship, which is trying to describe what Titan is doing. So essentially the active length tension relationship is kind of our active mechanical tension uh, kind of modifier and then our passive lectins relationship is our passive our titan uh, kind of based force uh, modifier so they're kind of um loosely related in the sense that we tend to find that um titan's force tends to increase pretty much as the uh, kind of active um, uh, sort of crossbridge forces are decreasing as a result of, their, of of being on what's called the descending limb, which is where there's not so many cross bridges forming because the actins and myosins aren't lined up perfectly. So we do see a loose relationship there, but technically they are kind of fundamentally different structures producing each of these effects.
0: Yeah, I, I didn't. Yeah, I definitely didn't want to imply that there's no relationship. I mean, if we're going to get to the descending limb. Um, the, the muscle, the fibers are linked there. But what we're we're talking about is the degree of either um, the cross bridging that's going that's going on. So, for example, a short muscle length, we have plenty of muscles that actually can produce significant amount of force at short fiber lengths because the Z-disc or the Z-lines are not pulled as closely together than the sarcomeres. So they still have sufficient um, cross bridging that's going on. Uh, they don't have that overlapping. Um, go ahead. What are you going to clarify there?
1: So uh, I think it's really important just uh, to jump in and, and, and comment briefly on and on, on what we're actually saying when we're talking about cross bridges on the active link tension relationship, because exactly like you just said, what we've got. Is a situation where we're going to get di- uh, perhaps smaller amounts of force at uh, short sarcomer lengths if we uh, go onto the ascending limb, optimal amounts of force on the uh, plateau, and then smaller amounts of force, active force on the descending limb. Now, the thing here though is that um, we only need a sufficient level of force to stimulate hypertrophy of that muscle fiber. We don't need to be on the plateau in order to stimulate hypertrophy. It just has to be a high enough level of force to stimulate hypertrophy.
0: Very, th- very important distinction right there because it gets set. So much that uh, we, you know, you, the muscle has to be training on that plateau that we have to almost be at mid range. But, but we absolutely can see significant hypertrophy outcomes and adaptations um, at those short lengths if there's just sufficient force being produced um, due to the fact that we don't have that overlapping um, uh, of sarcomeres.
1: And adding to that, if we look at the way in which fatigue is generated, Fatigue is going to be fairly closely related at short and moderate lengths. Fatigue is going to be quite closely related to the number of cross bridges that are forming because that's what's using ATP. Therefore, that's what's generating phosphates and acidosis. So essentially, when we look at that those situations, if we are on the sort of late part of the ascending limb, we're basically going to be producing a slightly lower level of force, but for a longer period of time. Because we've actually got the ability to train for slightly longer because we're not creating as much fatigue so essentially we end up with a similar force time integral we end up with the same dosage and mechanical tension even though we're not operating on the plateau so i don't think that it actually matters if we're working on the late part of the ascending limb or you know large parts of the descending limb as far as active mechanical tension is concerned i think we end up with the same dosage because essentially it's the fatigue that's causing us to stop and therefore uh, if we are actually working on those ascend, late ascending or um, early descending uh, parts of the length-tension relationship, as far as active force dosage is concerned, I think we end up in the same place.
0: Right, absolutely, and that's why when the topic of um, active insufficiency comes up, what we're really talking about there, how we're defining it, is the fact that the the the, the, the that particular muscle at a short length is not experiencing sufficient um, force. And so, therefore, it's not experienced sufficient tension.
1: And we have to go a really long way, I think, to make that happen. Uh, I don't think it's something that's, uh, you know, a case of saying, oh, well, it's not quite on the plateau, therefore it's not as good. I don't think we can say that. I think it has to be substantially below uh, a particular threshold. And I think that threshold, you know, is is a lot lower than, than most people tend to think it is. Right. So. <clears throat>
0: well, we can let's clarify that up before you like move on. So one of the things that, that comes up um will come up between active insufficiency and then passive insufficiency. Um and then oftentimes these do get defined as Muscle link, right? We're looking at almost like tendon to tendon muscle link. I think you should probably seen that in some places where where they the way they end up defining it as it's too short at one joint to reach uh, sufficient uh, or complete shortness at the next joint. Have you I th- have you seen that in some places where they talk about? So sometimes they that is talked about. It is talked about other times as being able to produce insufficient amounts of force at short links, and then passive insufficiency sometimes talked about not being able to. Uh, get to a fully stretched position at one joint due to being overly linked in at the other joint. Uh, I I see that being talked about at times. How do you How do you classify kind of uh, passive insufficiency?
1: How do I classify passive insufficiency? I I, <laughs> I don't think it's ever come up in um, in in the context of what I've been looking at. I mean. Um, if, if you're defining passive insufficiency as being unable to elongate the muscle, then I think that's a very difficult um, concept to address, because obviously the primary cause of that inability to elongate the muscle is going to be uh, stretch tolerance. So Exactly. I'm going to
0: actually interrupt you and say it's got to be stretch tolerance and nothing else
1: so and stretch tolerance is completely unrelated to anything uh kind of hypertrophy uh related right. so it's it's going to be one of those situations where you're basically saying oh well there's a neural limiter on how much i can lengthen this muscle and yeah absolutely if that's going to stop um you know the muscle being lengthened any further that's going to prevent stretch mediated hypertrophy from occurring to the extent that it can um because or, or limit rather the amount of stretch mediated hypertrophy that can occur because it's going to reduce the amount of passive tension that's theoretically possible um but um, you know, that's not really sort of what's going on at the muscular level. That's just a neural limiter that's being imposed, um, you know, sort of art, almost artificially, really.
0: And I think that that this also is a really important kind of segue, not even segue, it was just a topic. Up. So when we talk about force or tension, we're really talking about it at the fiber level, and not at the whole muscle level, because those are basically two different things. Um so all of this really comes back to what fibers are active um which will play a part in the concept of neuromechanical matching right and then we'll then then how those fibers those active fibers are experiencing tension either at uh, a long length or a short length um and for those that keep because you and i brought up uh, the neuromechanical we've used that word neuromechanical matching many times we're actually going to get into that and help people understand what that is uh when we get into the biceps and triceps stuff so Kind of laying the groundwork there, I, I think we've done a, an okay job of like talking about the fact that, okay, number one, stretch me, hypertrophy means that adaptations are occurring by uh, sarcomerogenesis, which means that there's an increase really either in fascicle length or in sarcomeres in the series. And then what we're looking at, that's going to be uh, what we consider like passive mechanical tension. Then active mechanical tension, we're looking at the actual contractile elements where we have uh, actin and myosin uh, cross-bridging that are occurring. And then we're going to get the, the hypertrophy outcomes that we'll see there will be at an increase in cross-sectional error. So that's kind of laying the groundwork for like the, what we're looking at there. And then the fact is that passive tension uh, is going to be the the mediator behind um, stretch mediated hypertrophy. It's going to be the catalyst behind it. Uh, And then that, for the most part, what we're going to be looking at when we talk about stretch media hypertrophy from all the research that we have up until this point, it looks like it occurs very quickly. Um, It then has a short duration before it plateaus off, which means that if you've been training for a long period of time, and this really, this is important because of some of the studies that we're going to talk about here, Chris. um, When we talk about stretch media hypertrophy, when we look at trained individuals and studies, uh, it's important to note that we generally don't see an increase in fascicle length measurement when it's been, when it has been measured. Um, and I think that'll come up in some of the stretching s- studies, um, that, that kind of, that we've talked about. Um, but then the fact is that there's going to be, um, a different degree. Um, some muscles are going to experience stretch mediated hypertrophy and some muscles just are not, and that doesn't have anything to do with, um, whether you're a beginner or an intermediate or, or, uh, an advanced lifter, it really has to do with what I, I, the word that I use is the architecture of the muscle. Uh, and that has to do with. Uh, a multitude of things, but what we're talking about mainly here is the link attention relationship, which we covered. So I think that kind of is the overall kind of high level 30,000 foot view of everything we just kind of covered.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, great uh, recap uh, that allows us now to kind of start talking about individual muscles, uh, you know, <laughs> uh, in, in in particular. So um, basically, you know, we've been hinting at this kind of length tension relationship being unique to different muscles. We've also talked a little bit about principle of neuro matching. Let's kind of uh, jump into those two uh, concepts and explain why those two things are really critical for understanding what the literature is telling us about the capacity of different muscles to experience stretch mediated hypertrophy.
0: Yeah. And neuromechanical matching is, is literally one of my, one of my favorite topics. It's so, it's very nerdtastic. So we both kind of nerd out on that. And (laughs) it's important um, to understand neuromechanical matching. I'm going to, I'm going to say this and I'm going to let you expound on it is that this, again, is another very well-documented concept. This isn't some theory that hasn't been looked at or seen consistently over and over again. I say laughing. I've actually researched this across both human and animal studies, and it's very consistent, uh, both in human and animal studies. And we see it across everything from the, the, uh, the skeletal, the muscular skeletal system to the even the respiratory system. And it's a very cool thing. And once I started doing some deep diving into neuromechanical matching, uh, we see it across, like I said, the entire body in, in a multitude of ways. And then we see, like I said, we see, even see it in animals. And I think that's such a really cool concept to understand from a, a nervous system, motor, motor unit recruitment concept that when we look at efficiency, this is a really important part for helping people understand what this, um, why this matters is that the, the body wants to be as efficient as possible. Uh, when you look at, for example, anything from calorie deficit to a uh, calorie surplus, uh, we're great at storing fat because the body wants to keep us alive. So, uh, it, we're if you can go out and do an hour of cardio and burn a beer, you know, 400 calories, but you can eat a piece of cheesecake and that's 1200 calories, you can erase it away in you know, a couple of minutes. So, the body wants to be really efficient at staying alive. So when we talk about neuromechanical matching, what we're really talking about is where we're at a very simplistic level. It's leverage. It's the amount of leverage certain muscles have in certain joint angle ranges of motion. And then how the nervous system allocates motor unit recruitment based on those leverages.
1: Exactly. Um, And essentially, what we're going to find uh, is that if we look at the leverages and how they change, for example, as we're saying across a joint angle range of motion, if we have multiple muscles working at that joint or multiple, um, you know, so muscles within a group or even different regions of the same muscle working at uh, a joint, we're going to find that um, the central nervous system will allocate um, activation to those uh, different areas in different proportions, depending on which muscle or region has the best leverage. Now, the classic example of this is the hip joint when we're doing squats um, or, or deadlifts or something like that. And basically what we tend to find is that uh, in the uh, most hip flexed position, it's the adductor magnus that has the best leverage. We tend to see that that therefore um you know uh, sort of has the greatest contribution to hip extension in that uh, in hip extension torque in that position as we kind of move up into a more extended position, it's the glute that has the best leverage, and that's why we tend to see the glute being most strongly activated in hip extended positions, which is you know one of the reasons why a lot of people use glute bridges and hip thrusts for glute training, you know it makes total sense. So essentially
0: yep. So, like, something I want to bring up because this is another part that's come up, and there was this, there was the one study that we we both think is pretty well done. It's the it's the squat depth study, right? That looked at um, the different vasti muscles, and it looked like the adductor magnus and looked at the glute mag, uh, glute max, and then it it showed that the the deeper squat, well, they actually measured it in knee flexion it was like it was uh 140 degrees of knee flexion was the deeper squat, which is a pretty full squat, right? And they saw that the adductor uh, magnus uh, and the glute max lose significantly more from the deeper squats than the ones that were done. It was anything in 90 degrees of deflection of comparatively to 140. So the first thing I think that people would come up and say and argue, and you and I had this conversation on the side, would we'll say, well, if the glute max, because here's another important concept, if a muscle doesn't have leverage at those longer lengths, we also don't expect to see, um, as we talked about before, the the um, <clears throat> the nervous system dial up a lot of motor improvement for activating um, either that division of the muscle or that muscle itself, which are the one we're talking about. But the glutes don't have very good leverage in those deeper degrees of hip flexion, whereas the adductor magnus tends to have really good leverage in those deeper degrees of hip flexion. So why? do you think that we saw, and we've discussed this, but I want the people who are listening or have seen that study and bring that up. Why do you think that we saw the glutes have um, more growth? And that would have, that study would also own novices. So I think that, that it's important to note that because again, it's going to come back to uh, who's going to see the greatest amount of potential from longer muscle length training. But why would the glute max have seen more muscle growth at that 140 degree deflection, that full squat, than it would add that more close, something closer to slightly above parallel or half squat.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's, it's, it's a great question. Um, before I, before I answer it, let me just clarify uh, something that you were just saying which is absolutely true. I want to am- amplify what you're saying. And that's that we, we need to have the muscle uh, activated in the stretch position, not just for the active tension, but also for the passive tension. So, yeah, this is, I, I
0: mean, I meant to actually emphasize that a little bit more. If a muscle doesn't have leverage at that long length, um, even if it potentially could benefit from stretch media hypertrophy uh, due to the fact that it doesn't have good leverages there, it's probably not going to experience stretch media hypertrophy as well. So go ahead. I want you to talk that. So here I'm going to throw this one out at you, the glutes one, that one, and then the other one I'll throw at you would be that comes up a lot are the lats
1: so yeah i mean basically just kind of building on what we're saying here about um needing a muscle to be activated in order to experience passive tension as well as active tension i think people hear the word passive and they think oh i mean that's got nothing to do with muscle activation well that's not what we're talking about when we say passive what we say when we what we mean when we say passive is that the nature of the tension is just being produced by the stretching of a structure it means there's no no actin myosin and crossbridge uh, motors there and motors obviously are producing active tension whereas uh stretching a structure is producing uh, passive tension, but the stretch is being massively enhanced by the presence of the activation because titan is changing the way it behaves in that condition. If it's an activated muscle fiber, titan will produce a lot more passive tension than if it's an inactive muscle fiber. So essentially, um, we we need to have the muscle to be activated in the stretch position in order to generate that passive tension uh, as well as the active tension. Okay, so coming to the question that you posed about the boot uh, um, kind of muscle.
0: Right. Why would the why would the glutes have grown more from that deeper squat
1: if I they don't have,
0: they don't have great leverage in those deep degrees of hip flexion? Why are the glutes growing more from a deeper squat than a half squat?
1: So I think this is really where the model that we've been developing about active tension generating myofibrillar addition and passive tension generating sarcomerogenesis is critical because essentially when we talk about muscle fibers um, uh, sort of uh, developing uh, increasing in size, um, there are actually two ways in which they can increase in size and both of those are completely independent of each other so if people have not been doing stretch position exercises with the glute and you suddenly introduce those exercises into their training program or as in the case of a a group of untrained people you introduce this stretch position exercise they're going to get an extraordinary amount of psychomerogenesis very very quickly and it's going to largely, I think, overshadow any kind of increases in cross-sectional area because fascicle length increases, sarcomogenesis just happens so fast and is such a, uh, a, a marked event. And I think really what we're seeing in that study that you're describing there is that the sarcomogenesis probably wasn't happening across the whole muscle because the activation of the glute, I don't think, is very high in, the, in that flexed hip position, but it's high enough for it to actually experience, um, you know, a meaningful amount of psychomarodensis. And that is going to happen so fast that it's going to largely overshadow the increases in cross-sectional area that are happening at the shorter muscle length. But critically, and we've talked about this before, that's not going to happen forever. In fact, it's probably not even going to happen for more than maybe sort of three to six months. Once we get past that kind of early phase of training, I think what we're going to see is that the stretch position uh, exercises start to produce a lot less, uh, you know, impressive results because the sarcomerogenesis just can't happen. You know, it's, it's 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 an adaption that is very, very limited in time.
0: And the few times I actually feel smart in my life is when I'll I'll, I'll see these pop up and I'll, I'll run them past you and I'll say, this is my theory. And you'll be like, that was, that was mine too. And this was one of them is that we, we earlier, when we talked about the length attention tension relationship and the fact that for a muscle to experience a significant sarcomerogenesis or, or benefit from stretch mediated hypertrophy, it has to have a length attention tension relationship where the sarcomeres get to that descending limb. So for the lower body studies, we have really seen that pretty consistently. Most of the, um, when studies have looked at, the working sarcomere uh, measurements um and lower body muscles most of them can they get pretty far down to the descending limb some more than others but unfortunately we don't have that for the glutes of all muscles in the lower body we don't have that for the glutes but my and your theory about that is it's very possible or even likely that the glutes uh, working sarcomere link gets very deep to the descending limb so what's interesting about this and what would end up validating our theory about that is eventually, if we do get working sarcomere measurements for the glutes to show they get deep into the descending limb, would mean that the glutes don't have to get deep into a stretch to experience that stretch me hypertrophy because of the fact that the the um, that the um, the titan would get lengthened very quickly as the glutes start to stretch under load.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think really the length tension relationship of the glutes is going to mirror that of the quads. It's going to be, uh, it's going, to, it's not going to have an ascending limb. I mean, we kind of really uh, sort of know that already, really. Yeah. Um, we do. And, and and so it's going to be on the plateau pretty much in a contract position, which is uh, totally logical because we need the force production in that uh, extended hip position. And therefore, it's just going to have a really, really long descending limb. So it's going to have the capacity to experience you know, a lot of stretch mediated hypertrophy, but critically, um, only if we can actually activate it in that um, you know, stretch position, which is very, very difficult to do because it has such poor leverage and the electromagnets tends to take over in those positions. So I think really, you know, the the, the literature is largely kind of supporting the, the model that we're talking about here insofar as, yes, you know, take someone, train people and throw stretch position exercises at them. I and mean, even though the activation of the isn't great in that uh, kind of uh, flexed hip position, it's still going to produce a fairly uh, kind of uh, noticeable response
0: right absolutely and what what also though is cool about that study is it's another study that supports neuromechanical matching right and that the fact that the, the doctor magnus saw a significant amount of um uh hypertrophy comparatively to the to the half squat or the higher squat position and again we're looking at that once you go to deep degrees of hip flexion the adductor magnus we didn't even need to know because i i don't think we have working soccer measurements for the adductors, um but i'm not positive I don't think we do. We do. We don't do. No. So I think that um, even if I, I would assume, uh, and I think if we ever get those measurements, we'll be proven right. That you, Doug Magnus, probably does get deep to the descending limb too. But regardless, um, in a in a it doesn't matter because in that deep hip flexion, it just has fantastic leverage comparatively to everything else, and that comes back to um when we talk about neuromechanical matching right that's the whole thing we're talking about there is that you go through when you go through a squat what we're really looking at is hip extensors right and since the hamstrings don't really contribute because their relative length doesn't change a whole lot what we're looking at is the glutes in the adductor magnus actually this squat yesterday my adductor magnus is super super sore for anybody who's ever done squats and think it's their hamstrings that are sore it's actually the hamstring division of the adductor magnus that gets sore and it has the kind of the same origin um as the medial hamstrings up there on the, the ischium. So um, they often confuse that with their hamstrings. They're like, "Well, my why are my hamstrings so 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 sorry? So it's not your hamstrings; it's your adductor magnus. But as you get it go through, and from a standing position where you're in full hip extension, going through hip flexion, you're going to go through what we think of as neuromechanical matching, right? So the, the glutes start to lose leverage, and the adductor magnus start to gain leverage. And then you're as you're going from the bottom of the squat and extending the hip, you're gonna you're basically you're gonna flip flop that, and the adductor magnus is gonna shorten, and then the glutes shorten. But then at the top the glutes gain their most leverage. So when you're looking at something like a hip thrust or a bridge or something like that, as you get into hip extension, the glutes actually gain leverage and kind of push the pelvis away from them because they have such good leverage at those those degrees of terminal hip extension.
1: Yeah, and I mean, just for complete clarity here, when we're talking about, you know, uh, sort of the transition from the adductor magnus to the glutes in the squat as we progress through the hip extension range of motion. Um, obviously, the squat is most difficult in that uh, flexed hip position. So. <laughs> Even though technically the glutes are going to be the prime uh, hip extensor in the in the contractor position, that doesn't really matter because we're not really producing a lot of uh force. Therefore, there's not really a high level of activation of the hip extensors in that standing uh, position in the squat. So, and the opposite obviously is, or not the exact opposite, but you know, broadly speaking, the opposite is the case with the hip thrust or glute bridge.
0: Exactly. I have always said I think the squat is secretly an inductor magnus exercise because. And you actually did a, a very cool uh, research paper you actually were involved in this uh, a long time ago that said as we get into heavier um squats lunges and stuff like that over a certain degree of one rep max loading it automatically becomes more hip extension dominant movement so um yeah i, I see your eyes light up because you like that stuff I've, I've referenced that many times it's such a really well done uh study looking at um what happens in again i think that's another neuromechanical matching Kind of uh, study
1: uh, in itself. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, that's uh, definitely a separate, uh, a separate podcast topic. There. I think it's is too big for what we're covering here today.
0: But yeah, yeah I and, mean, uh, basically, uh, we've got. Oh, wait, this- hold on. Before yeah, before we get too off track, though, I wanted you to also talk about neuromechanical matching and length tension relationship and sarcoma hypertrophy related to we did we just kind of covered the glutes and, and overall because I know that study has come up with people and I told them hey hey we don't have a link attention relationship uh, like factually you don't have working working sorry, from your measurements for the glutes uh, we we have it for stuff like quads uh, we have it for hamstrings but we we don't have it for glutes we don't have it for adductors I couldn't remember if we had it for adductors but I wanted to say the other one that I get asked about a lot are the lats and um, you remember the, a couple of years ago we laughed the other day we were talking about this I said. When I was going through the research quite a few years ago, really getting into internal moment arms, when we talk about leverages and mechanical matching, I said, it just hit me. I was like, you don't need to do a bunch of stuff to figure out whether where the latch kind of training range of motion is and basically pull downs through whether it's adduction or extension. It's going to be somewhere around 120 degrees because they run out of leverage after that. And that's why this is a pretty cool thing. And I don't know if we want to get, get into this, but EMG pretty consistently lines up with neuromechanical matching as well. And that's kind of the, the the thing about this, the modeling that we talk about here is that we have a pretty consistent, and that's not always, there's flaws with EMG. Um, but we have a pretty consistent basis that where we have good studies done looking at the internal leverages of muscles, EMG almost always lines up pretty well with those things. So the one I was going to bring up with you is we do have some studies looking at the lats and that potentially that upper division, that thoracic division might benefit from stretch medi- mediated hypertrophy. However, the lats run out of leverage very quickly. Um, whenever, as soon as you start raising the arm uh, from that anatomical position and you lift it, whether it's in the sagittal plane or whether you're in the frontal plane, they run out of leverage pretty quickly. So what do you think about the idea that you can kind of lengthen the lats and get stretch me and hypertrophy out because I don't think that 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 pelvic division or that lumbar division I don't think they make it to the descending limb
1: I think overall the um, you know from from the data that we've got it looks like the lats overall don't go anywhere near down the descending limb as far as like the quadriceps do for example um, you know I don't think they're, they're going to experience uh, they don't have the capacity to experience as much uh, stretch mediated hypertrophy is something like the quadriceps or the glutes but you know i think uh, the point you're just making there with neuromechanical matching i mean that's really the, the thing that is is critical here is that is it possible to activate the uh, lats in a stretch position in the in the sagittal plane um you know probably not uh they probably don't have uh you know the leverage necessary to to be activated strongly in that in that stretch position so you know can we lengthen them to that position absolutely are they going to activate in that position well that's the tricky part uh, and i think really uh that's always going to be the question is can we actually make them activate uh, in that position and as you were just saying generally speaking when we look at moment arm changes over a range of motion uh, and we look at activation changes over a range of motion with emg often those uh kind of data tend to line up pretty nicely And when they do it's a really nice uh, kind of confirmation that we are actually on the right track when when we're talking about uh, you know those kind of muscles. So broadly speaking, I think um, you know uh, certainly in the sagittal plane, it's going to be very very difficult to generate um, you know stretch-mediated hypertrophy in the lats.
0: Yep, and just to reiterate that, um, and when we look have looked at neuromechanical matching and leverages, and we we try to kind of overlay EMG across that stuff. Depending on if we're working through the frontal plane or sagittal plane when we go through the sagittal plane we always see a lot of rear delt right and that lines up really well with the fact that we know the rear delts have great leverage throughout that entire joint angle range of motion through the sagittal plane all the way from like 180 degrees of, of shoulder flexion with the arms completely overhead all the way down to that anatomical position the rear delts have good leverage throughout that entire, entire range where they really don't have any leverage kind of in that frontal plane uh when they've been measured there it's very minimal and uh, and then on the EMG, we generally kind of see that mimic. There is that the rear delts don't really show up a lot um, in those kind of a lap pull down through the frontal plane. Whereas if you're doing like a shoulder extension movement down through that sagittal plane, they they they're very highly activated. And that, like you said, that's a really cool confirmation that we're getting. Like, okay, so these things continue to line up with modeling, so we know what's going to be producing the greatest amount of force based on leverages and those kind of things through through particular motions. Uh, and then as we've seen, maximal voluntary isometric contractions of the lats, different degrees of humeral elevation. When they start up at one, 120, you can see this really consistently across the, the lat research. They're, they kind of show up, but depending, like in a in dumbbell pullover, and depending on what study you're looking at, they're almost non-existent. I send you, I think it was four pullover studies where it shows you if you're doing a dumbbell, barbell pullover, the lats are just, that's an important part you were talking about earlier, is that if a muscle is not active, then it's even if it gets to that descending limb and and quote unquote when it experiences passive attention it needs to be active for in order to really like get the like the full amount of that passive attention. So with the lats as you get the arm and those higher degrees humeral elevation um, they just run out of leverage and this is mirrored very effectively and across all of the last studies, like I said, especially the ones where we see maximal uh, voluntary isometric contractions at different ranges of motion. As that arm gets down closer to the body, the activation just goes through the roof for the lats. So somewhere around 90 and below, we see really good activation of the lats. And once you get above that, they pretty much lit- like literally fall off.
1: Absolutely, um, you know. I think, and that's—it's really nice to see those com- uh, kind of uh, agreements between the muscle activation data and the moment arm data, because that really tells us, as you're just saying, that you know we're absolutely uh, on the right track when it comes to understanding how these various muscles uh, tend to work.
0: Right, uh, and so for kind of putting those pieces together, what we we're just talking about is number one, the length-tension relationship, how muscles experience stretch, have. And the second thing is that in order for us to get into this other part where we're going to talk about biceps and triceps, we need to understand where those muscles have leverage and their length tension relationships. So we can understand when we look at these longitudinal hypertrophy studies, what those outcomes are actually telling us They're like we need to understand, like when somebody says, um, bicep from longer muscle links and when we you and i send each other one of these it's a it's a literally one minute conversation we like that's what happened there. and then we just move on with our day because uh the fact is we we because <laughs> we understand this modeling um we i don't look at the, what they said in the abstract I, I look at the methodology they used in the study and then i go oh, okay well this is what actually happened
1: absolutely so um you know just kind of um in terms of where we are with the uh with the sort of the biceps and triceps just kind of um obviously we've got a number of studies now into the biceps now just going back to um sort of the beginning um you know probably about 10 years ago we had a study came out where they measured uh essentially a a, a full range of motion versus a partial and the partial was in the middle of the full range of motion so it wasn't kind of a partial that was short it wasn't a partial that was long it was kind of a partial somewhere in the middle and that study really was the kind of the, the the spark that sent me down the route of thinking about uh, length and relationships being different in different muscles because it basically showed there was no difference in hypertrophy of the elbow flexor group. And this is the only study that's ever actually measured the elbow flexor group in its entirety, which is gonna be a really critical point for what we're gonna talk about next. Uh, But basically, the only study that actually measured the other flexor group in its entirety, and they found no difference in the hypertrophy between the 4 range of motion, obviously, which incorporates a stretch position, and the partial, which did not. And so really, um, kind of, that was the study that made me start to think about, um, you know, is this lack of stretch-mediated hypertrophy in this study um, essentially telling us something important? And obviously, uh, you know, that's the model that we've now been working with, which is that um, the... The uh, essentially the, uh, this, the stretched position isn't benefiting the elbow flexor group as a, as a whole, because um, the individual elbow flexors don't have length tension relationships that go very far down the descending limb. And that's I mean, that's verifiable. We can, we can see that in a number. I of think uh,
0: you're so to clarify for people, uh, you're talking about the 2012 Pinto study
1: right now, right? Exactly, exactly. So it goes back a very long time. And it's basically uh, sort of, then there was obviously the the NUNAS study that came out after that, where they compared, uh, you know, sort of uh, different strength curves, not ranges of motion, but strength curves, uh, but those strength curves essentially creating the same effect as range of motion uh, by essentially causing uh, peak forces and therefore uh, peak activations to occur at different uh, sort of parts of the exercise range of motion. And so uh, that basically found the same result, but they actually only, I think, measured. Um, they measured.
0: The, they measured I, I think it was fifty percent um, when they when we're talking about like distal or proximal measurements. It was like a fifty percent. Uh, but measure. they only
1: measured the biceps brachii, which I think is is the critical point. They didn't measure the entirety of the elbow yeah. uh, flexor, but they still found the same kind of result, which is that there was no stretch-mediated hypertrophy. Which really kind of uh, sort of got me uh, sort of uh, thinking along the same kind of lines.
0: So I, let's back up for a second to the 2012 Pinto study, because we discussed it really quickly before we got started. And I think it, this, it's super important to lay the groundwork with that one, right? Because um, that one, it was a full range of motion preacher curl from basically a fully extended elbow to 130 degrees of elbow flexion, So what we would consider a full range of motion preacher curl. And then they used a partial range of motion preacher curl where it was 50 to 100 degrees. So kind of that... Almost what you think of is just like the mid range. Um, you know, like I'm just, it, it's not like a fully extended elbow. We're not fully closing off the range of motion. We're kind of just keeping within that mid range. The outcomes from those were no were no different in the elbow flexor uh, hypertrophy outcomes. That was the point that you were trying to make about that one, despite that one of them used a, a full range of motion and one of them used a partial range of motion. But the outcomes, hypertrophy outcomes weren't any different.
1: Exactly. And the critical thing here though is that by measuring elbow flexor muscle thickness, they're actually capturing the entirety of the muscle that is being used to perform that motion. Therefore, neuromechanical matching is irrelevant because we're measuring everything. And yeah. neuromechanical matching just moves hypertrophy from one place to another, really. So if we measure everything, now you made a good point about it only being one particular location on the muscle, and that is a limitation, but fundamentally we're measuring the whole muscle. So you know. We're not really expecting to see differences in hypertrophy. Now, the reason this is critical is because when we look at the leverages of the individual elbow flexors, they change massively across the elbow flexion range of motion. The biceps brachii have great, and brachialis have great leverage in the stretch position, and the brachioradialis has great leverage in the contractor position. So if we are starting from a neurochemical matching point of view, we would expect the stretch position exercise to cause more biceps brachii and brachialis growth, and the contract position exercise to cause more brachioradialis growth. And, and that's the really interesting thing, is because when studies came after this and started uh, just measuring biceps brachy, they started to have a tendency to find greater biceps brachii growth in the stretch position. And, of course, they then attributed that to stretch mediated hypertrophy due to extra <laughs> tension. But as soon as we look at it, we go, well... The principle of neomechanical matching would tell us that that's exactly what would happen because the muscle's being activated in that position. It's got potentially nothing to do with the ability of that muscle to experience Uh, passive tension it's simply because you're not measuring the brachioradialis in your uh, kind of assessment of muscle uh, hypertrophy and therefore you're excluding the one uh, kind of part of the muscle that will be expected to grow more at short muscle lengths and so really this you know is a very big limitation of any study that doesn't measure elbow flexor uh, kind of muscle size and actually chooses to measure just one of the individual elbow flexors instead
0: yeah that so that actually leads us perfect segue. Uh, I feel like you're you're really crushing today, as far as like giving like setting them up and knock them down, as far as segways, because that's like the perfect segue into the Sato study, um, the Corda study, and Bedrosa study, right? So um, I don't know if we said the se- basically the Sato study, Bedrosa study used what I consider are almost identical um, methodologies. Like they they basically did an extended partial ROM zero, so fully extended elbow to 50 degrees.
1: And then they did
0: a fixed partial ROM at 50 to 130. Um, That was the SATO and then Pedrosa did um, an extended ROM from zero to 68, which is real, those are really important numbers. And then they did a flexed partial ROM picture curl from 68 to 30. Now, okay, so if we understand the Murray study, which looked at the internal moment arms of the elbow flexors, I wonder where it is the biceps brachii has the greatest degree of leverage to flex the elbow. You're you're free you're free to tell me this one because what's funny is about these is when you just take the Murray study and you look at how they did the methodologies for that study. It's a like it's a like I said it's a one minute conversation.
1: Absolutely. So basically, the biceps brachii has the best leverage from uh, the most extended elbow position, which we can classify as zero. All the way through to about 70 degrees which is you know sort of not quite parallel if you're doing a standard uh, biceps curl standing position um now essentially um the that particular range of motion is precisely the range of motion that uh you know the stretch position exercises are using in the most recent studies as you you know just been describing um so essentially we are pretty much expecting based purely on the principle of neuromechanical matching that the biceps brachii and potentially also the brachialis would experience most growth as a result of those stretch positions and as we were just saying potentially has absolutely nothing to do with the uh, actual uh, sort of p- potential for passive tension being generated in those scenarios it could simply just be that the activation of those uh, muscles is occurring to a greater extent because of the principle of neuromechanical matching which is as we've just been describing very very well documented across a number of different scenarios
0: Yes. So if you look, like I said, if you look at the Murray study, they measure and they saw that the bicep brachii had its greatest leverage from zero to 60, 68 degrees. And then so the Pedrosa study literally did from zero to 68 degrees and then said, oh, the biceps grow better at longer lengths. But what they did not measure in those, as you said, the brachioradialis, and then they tried to match the torque curves by looking at, okay, so here's the amount of load that was used at zero to uh, 68 and then we're gonna have to increase the loading due to, to change the change of torque curve from 68 to 130 but if they would have done measurements actual measurements on the regular radial radialis i think what we're just going to see there is that it would have grown uh, pretty comparatively to the biceps rocking. so i don't think not even think i'm pretty can say with 99.9 percent certainty that neither the SATO study or the Pedrosa study actually shows that the bicep rocking grew from stretch B hypertrophy. It just They just measured the bicep rocking in the study and then loaded it where it has the best leverage.
1: <laughs> so, but yeah, basically it's growing at a more extended elbow angle. Um, and that's where it has best leverage. Um, so we would expect that to be the case. I don't think it necessarily is, uh, as we were just saying, a guarantee of a stretch mediated diversity. Let me address one more point, which is coming up in the most recent studies, which is that um, we're tending to see um, the difference between the uh, extended elbow position, the stretch positions, and the uh, contract positions being in the more distal parts of the muscle. So this is something that's coming up a lot, and I think it's something that needs also to be addressed. And people are saying, you know, quite rightly, that when we see distal region hypertrophy occurring preferentially, it's often a sign that, uh, we are getting stretch-mediated hypertrophy in the form of addition of sarcosomes in and series. And, you know, and I think it's important to note that that absolutely is uh, is true in the sense that often distal region hypertrophy is a marker of that happening, but it can occur without it occurring. So we can get distal region hypertrophy uh, preferentially occurring without an increase in muscle fascicle length. That's definitely been observed. Uh, and so, essentially, it's not, you know, a guarantee. And this is something that I think is also worth noting, and that's that technically, the biceps brachii are actually uh, a two-joint muscle. So, or two-joint muscles. So, basically, when we're talking about two-joint muscles, we see something really, really interesting. So, if we look at the hamstrings, for example, and we look at the rectus femoris, for example, we tend to find that they have very, very clear proximal and distal region um, uh, activations and also hypertrophy. So if we train the rectus femoris uh, in a hip flexor as a hip flexor we tend to see proximal region uh kind of activation yep. we train distal region we tend to get sorry we train knee extension we tend to get distal region activation that's very very well established yep. in the hamstrings we we get the same thing tending to occur so um, basically i think there's no reason to uh kind of uh, doubt that other two joint muscles may display similar behaviors uh, and so what we might expect, therefore, is to get greater distal region activation of the biceps in an, in an elbow flexion exercise and uh, potentially some more proximal region activation if we were to use the biceps in uh, a shoulder flexion exercise. So I mean, that's that's totally plausible. So I think really, again, when we're talking about these distal versus proximal region uh, kind of uh, growth occurring, so we're getting greater distal region in the stretch position exercise and people are going, oh, well, that's clearly stretch mediated uh, hypertrophy. We're well, like, yes, absolutely, it could be, absolutely could be, but there are also other plausible explanations of that happening. Firstly, it could just be regional apropos of nothing because different regions will do different things, or it could be regional apropos of, you know, this fact that we are dealing with a 2 joint muscle and we tend to see the location closest to the joint being the area that is most uh, strongly activated uh, in, uh, the, you know, the exercise that we're doing. So I don't think we can use distal region hypertrophy as, as a proxy for uh, kind of uh, stretch mediate hypertrophy. It's absolutely other. There are absolutely other possibilities.
0: Yeah. And that actually is a really great point is that, as you said, that we, for the most part, generally when we see um, sarcomeres in series, stretch media, hypertrophy, sarcomerogenesis, it will tend to be in the distal regions of that particular muscle, but there are times when we see it regionally based um, and it has nothing to do with that. Um, I think that one of your, th- there's one that Talks about that, for example, with the hamstrings, it was a um, a deadlift related to a leg curl, and we saw regional hypertrophy there. And then um, sometimes the um, the actual resistance profile itself can play a part in what region um, is going to uh, experience hypertrophy, whether it's proximal or distal as well. So those are kind of um, areas that aren't. They're a little bit more gray because, as you said, just because we get uh, regional hypertrophy, something in the distal region doesn't necessarily. It's not a one hundred percent signifier that stretched media hypertrophy occurred.
1: Absolutely, uh, you know, and I think that's really why when we're looking at the uh, literature relating to the uh, elbow flexors at the moment, and I, I'm going to use the words elbow flexor uh, rather than biceps. <laughs> so, yep. when we're looking at the elbow flexor literature at the moment, I think um, there are definitely um, you know sort of good reasons to interpret the literature in uh, a very different way from the way it's currently being interpreted i mean generally what we tend to see is people look at the literature and go hey i've got you know these studies these most recent studies are all kind of giving indications of the biceps experiencing stretch mediated hypertrophy as if it's almost like we've got you know sort of counting counting the number of studies that show one thing versus another thing and i think a better approach is to try and uh, understand what the actual physiology is, is telling us. Apply that to the data that we've got, and go with our framework of how we understand how this stuff works. Here are our data. If we now drop the data into that framework of how we understand the basic physiology, uh, what comes out the other end is something completely different from what uh, you know. I think most people are tending to. I,
0: I think right now, the majority of the way it's presented is backwards of that i think what happens is and we've discussed this many times is that there's an outcome from a study they print the outcome of the study in the abstract and then i uh, think basically or if you read the whole study and they they there's no when people read it they just read well this is what happens um a great example of that was the meta-analysis that looked at training to failure um and they said in one of those parts they said well if you're training with high reps Uh, training to failure is probably better and I I, my first thought when I remember reading that was what would be the mechanism there would change that they they don't ever explain that stuff I'm like you know you need to explain the mechanism so I think one of the things that um, that generally we look at is when we talk about we get a new study or somebody sends it to us or you get one or whatever we share we look at the methodologies they use and then we try to Understand from a modeling standpoint why these outcomes occurred, and not so much we just look at the outcomes and say this happens. Because here's the thing, Chris: if you base your ideology around study outcomes and just say this is what happens, you're going to be all over the place. You will be all over the place week to week. And I can actually, you know, one of our rules is remember, people may not our, our rules is will never name names in this, but. there's people within the evidence-based community, and I think what they do is they they don't have – they don't understand either understand the mechanisms or don't have a model. And then what happens is when studies come out, they just say, this is what the study shows, so that's what it is. I'm like, but what's the mechanism that produced that? So when the meta-analysis came out for training to failure, again, and one of the things they said (laughs) – I remember being up in arms because they said, well, if you train with higher reps, it's better to train to failure because that'll produce – better hypertrophy outcomes. And I remember thinking, you need to explain the mechanism to me why that would be like you can, if you can't explain the mechanism, I'm just going to dismiss that because there's no mechanism that would make sense as to why that would be. So if you, as you said, if you have a model, we'll talk about that a lot through these, right? And then throughout the educational portal and everything, that's what you have to build. You have to build a model. So then when these studies are done and you look at the mechanistic approach that they use, you can understand why the outcome was what it was.
1: Absolutely, and actually, that's a perfect segue into now. So, sort of talking a little bit about the triceps, because um, when we look yeah, at the data,
0: I'm finally going to get you on record to talk about that crappy triceps study. We're gonna we're gonna get to it, but let's 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 get. Now that we kind of established, I think we could say with with these, and we're looking at. Oh, we we didn't get to one. Let's let's do this last one, and we'll get to triceps. So the other one is you were just talking about. If we're the, since the biceps are, are a they're a biarticular um, muscle, both heads of the biceps are they're biarticular, so they both cross the elbow and the shoulder joint. So only if we just had a study that looked at a, a hyperextended shoulder position where the biceps were really lengthened compared to one where we had a, a flex shoulder position. If we just had a study like that. And we had the outcomes there. We'd get an idea if, if the biceps really. Did. Oh wait, Chris, we have one of those because the latest CORE study where they did um, a incline dumbbell curl compared to a preacher curl. I know what you're going to say. I'm just setting that up for some for some hyperbole. Go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> the,
1: the problem that we've got with these uh, uh, comparisons is that um, the strength curve isn't necessarily going to be what we want. Uh, in order to make that uh, comparison appropriate. So, yeah, I I mean, I I agree with you. The easiest way, uh, as in the famous hamstring study, that basically measured the difference between a um, a kind of a lying leg curl versus a seated leg curl. I mean, very simply just change you know, uh, the, the, the position of the hamstrings by changing the uh, the kind of hip position rather than the range of motion at the knee. Uh, you know, very, very kind of a clever way of doing it. And theoretically, we do the same thing with the biceps. We can move the shoulder position and therefore stretch the biceps to a greater extent. But if we are doing, uh, you know, a standing incline bench curl, uh, the actual, as as the recent uh, kind of uh, analysis has shown, you know, basically we're not creating a lot of force in that stretch position because of the actual external uh, leverage uh, that the uh, dumbbell has on the elbow isn't very high in that stretch position. So yes, it is moving the elbow in, sorry, the biceps into a stretch position because of the shoulder position. But it's not actually causing peak forces to occur in that stretch position. So it's not actually a stretch position exercise, despite the fact that most people treat it as one.
0: What is interesting about the court of studies that from everything they documented, it's actually a really well done study, um and it was on trained women. I think that's kind of the- Important thing. And then they measured the muscle thickness at 50, 60, and 70% proximal distal uh uh locations. And then it was the preacher curl versus the inclined dumbbell curl. Now, the interesting thing about that was that you laughed, and you like, how did they? I think it was 12 weeks long, right? It was 12 weeks, and then they had zero hypertrophy outcomes for the inclined dumbbell curl. And you go, I don't understand how you go 12 weeks and not get any hypertrophy out of out of out of an exercise. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I mean, that's the problem with exercise science, though. Sometimes things just go, uh, you know, kind of awry and, and it doesn't work out the way you're expecting it to. So obviously my sympathies <laughs> with the authors on that one. I, um, the, the,
0: what I did, what I do find interesting about that um, is that it, it was untrained women. Uh, I think they had to have, I think there were two years. Uh, well, I will try if I if I remember right. I can't remember if they were recreationally trained or if they were well trained, uh, but they were trained. But then they they had, they didn't see hypertrophy outcomes for preacher curl. And it was a barbell for preacher curl. And then, they, but they didn't see anything for the, you um, the incline dumbbell curl, which trained it at a, a longer length. I, I did find that weird. And then they did everything. They even documented their diet. So it wasn't, I don't feel like it was like a documentation purpose. And they, um I, I don't really can't explain why they wouldn't have seen any other than, as you said, I mean, they measured at. Um, three different uh, degrees of proximal to distal attachment. So I, I don't know why they end up having anything at all other than, as you said, if they actually put a little graph up, right, on that study. If somebody goes and looks at that, wants to look at that study, to kind of like the little dark and bold graph to show that the resistance profile, that for the barbell preacher curl, it's very high. It's a descending resistance profile. It's very high at the start drops off at the top. And with the inclined dumbbell curl, it's very low at the bottom. And then it gets harder as you get to closing off elbow flexion. So um again, that could literally just come back to what we just talked about. Um, if they're just measuring the biceps brachi, um then the the basically the barbell creature curl should end up showing um more hypertrophy than an inclined dumbbell curl. But I also think the, the last thing to cover is that we have some stretching studies. You had posted a couple of infographics. And the first thing I thought of was, was this topic was that in the infographics that you showed for biceps and triceps stretches, I think neither the, the biceps or triceps had any, the quads had muscle growth in the stretch group, and then the biceps and triceps had none.
1: Yeah, I think that's the interset uh, stretching study. Yes, the it infographic is. Recently.
0: Yep and what was i found that that was the first thing i thought of is that okay so i think that was also a novice novice training and then the intercept novice training the, the the group was it were they trained or will trained i think they were trained i can't remember but the basically the quad group did experience muscle growth and then the biceps and triceps did not with the stretching i thought that was interesting as well because it, it basically lines up with the like i said the muscle architecture that we kind of laid out here that we're looking at for whether or not a muscle benefits from longer muscle needs. all right so that will lead us into now the triceps I, I think we can we can say at this point if you if you look at the if you look at the leverage of the biceps and you look at the as you point out actually if you look at the leverages of the elbow flexors and you take those into account and you look at these studies and then you take into account that we have multitude of studies that have measured the working sarcomere links of the biceps and triceps. For the biceps, the, the research that we currently have basically just shows that it grows really well when you load it where it has great leverage. But there's, until we would actually have a study, we have no studies right now. It's important to notice because we talked about this very early on. We have zero studies that have measured biceps fascicle link in a hypertrophy, longitudinal hypertrophy study, zero. They all measured cross-sectional area, uh, and
1: that's it. Yeah, I mean, it's mostly muscle thickness. Um, I think yeah, uh, occasionally... The
0: SADO the 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 was just actually just muscle thickness, I think.
1: I think most of them are, actually. Uh, yeah. It's quite rare to get. There is a cross-sectional area uh, I can, I think, uh, study, um, but I think most of them are muscle thickness studies.
0: Right. So right now, no, I, well, let's say it this way. Nobody can definitively say from any of the research, apparently have that the biceps grow from longer muscle length. That's that's like, I guess that's another way of saying that they don't. Nobody can say that they definitively based on the uh, methodologies used, they can't really say they grow from longer muscle length. If you want to say um, they grow from well, more extended on elbow, point. if you say yeah. they grow from more extended elbow, that's an accurate statement.
1: Which technically is the same thing as a longer muscle length, but the implication is that it's the passive tension uh, that's causing stretch media typography. I think what we're saying here is that there isn't, uh, from from the interpretation that we described today, there is no uh, strong case to be made that the biceps brachii are growing as a result of stretch extra, as a result of you know, uh, this stretch mediated hypertrophy. They're growing uh, at uh, extended elbow positions because that's where they're most strongly activated. And that's just principle of neuro matching. So really what we need to see is either studies starting to look at elbow flexor hypertrophy as a whole, or we need to see some other kind of adjustment being made Uh, you know, to, as you were saying previously, maybe looking at uh, shoulder angle to create, uh, you know, a stretch position, but obviously then managing the strength curve. um, I think that's what we really would need to see in order to address that.
0: I I think in order to, for somebody to accurately say or to make the statement that the biceps grow from longer muscle links, we would need an extended shoulder position with a resistance profile where the biceps are are, um, challenged at, you know, at the elbow, right? We had a fully extended elbow and then we even did fascicle length measurements at the start and the end. So um, that would be kind of the ultimate study. Am I missing, unless i missing one
1: thing? No, not at all. It's just that it's the perfect segue because when we start to look at the triceps studies, um, there is actually a study that did that basically for the, for the triceps because um, when we're looking at, you know, basically our favorite uh, triceps study, which measured, um, you know, sort of, uh, Muscle fascicle lengths, uh, which is obviously uh, critical, um, that actually used the overhead position, obviously, to create an increase in in triceps, Rachi long head uh, length. But it also modified elbow positions to do the same thing. So not only are we modifying shoulder angle, we're also modifying elbow angle in that in that particular case. Oh, okay, um, so
0: that I, that allows. I feel like that allows me to say because we. I, I feel like overall we have a little bit better some of the little bit better uh, studies as far as triceps go when looking at some of the stuff. Then, like I said, we don't have a single study that looks at uh, fascicle length for biceps, but we actually have a few for the triceps and we have different uh, shoulder positions um, and resistance profiles. So we have a little bit, what I consider a little bit clearer picture for the triceps.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think uh, definitely it's a huge value uh, to have a fascicle length measurement as we've been talking about throughout this whole conversation. And, you know, to have that in a study that has measured differences, um, you know, between uh, two different exercises is just so valuable because it allows us to determine that, you know, if fascicle length isn't increasing, um, you know, or is not different in terms of its increases, um, then that's a really clear sign that we're not getting stretch mediated hypertrophy
0: yeah so I'm gonna let you tackle this one because I I sent, I sent you this one and you were you were really happy about it. You did the I always call it the like the seal with the seal. When you ever see seals at the zoo and they're getting fish and they're clapping I always I do the same thing when I get something that makes me excited. So this was a literally this is a fairly old study. I think that's why you were surprised by it, right? It was, it's from 95, but it's really well done.
1: So yeah, so just going right the way back to the beginning of the triceps literature, There's a there's a 95 study which basically um, it wasn't chain. It wasn't comparing different exercises. It literally was just looking at the overhead. Uh, triceps extension. I mean, that's all it was doing it was just basically saying, you know, here's, here's a, a you know, a training program. We're going to do overhead triceps extensions. So obviously stretching the long head or training the long head in a stretch position, um, you know, is that going to cause stretch mediated hypertrophy as measured by an increase in fascicle length? And, you know, it didn't. I mean, that's the critical thing. We didn't get an increase in fascicle length after training the triceps brachii long head in that overhead position, which is, you know, really, really critical result. And, you know, if we could get something like that, um, you know, done in the biceps, that would be an amazing uh, kind of uh, piece of information for us. But, you know, clearly what we've got here, you know, right at the beginning, we're seeing that triceps brachii long head is not increasing muscle lengths after being trained in a stretch position. And that's before we even start talking about the actual, uh, you know, comparisons between stretched and contracted position exercise. Uh, you know, and, and those studies themselves.
0: So the the study we're referencing here is called is, is Kawakami, K A W A K A M I, and it's 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 I, what I would consider somewhat underpowered. It's only five subjects, but it was fourteen weeks long, and they did an enormous amount of um, measuring as far as fasting and cross-sectional area. It's as far as that stuff. They it's really, really it's thorough. It's incredibly thorough for. I think it's five subjects, right? Uh, I think it's five subjects for 14 weeks. They all did uh, overhead triceps extension, uh, French press. And what really happened over 14 weeks is there was literally no fascicle length increase. In 14 weeks of an overhead extension where everybody says the long head is going to be stretched and grow, blah, 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 and all that stuff. Did the long head grow? Yes, it absolutely did. And I get, that comes back to us kind of circling about we, we, we didn't say that a muscle won't grow at a longer length. We, the whole point we're getting at is stretch mediated hypertrophy is means that you're getting an extra stimulus on top of what you'd be getting active. So what we did not see happen going far back as 95 when they did a, a very thorough job of, of basically fascicle length, cross-sectional area, everything. They measured about everything you could measure for these guys' long head. For the long head and the overhead position, there was no stretch mediated hypertrophy.
1: As you say, you know, the, the hypertrophy itself was very robust. I mean, we're looking, I think it was sort of 25 to 30% increases in other measurements of muscle size, but the fascicle length increase was, was, was very pretty, you know, numerically trivial and, um, you know, obviously non-significant. So, um, you know, clearly what we're saying here or seeing here rather is that we're getting a robust hypertrophy, um, I hyper, can I even speak, I'm um, getting tired. Perfect. I've your response, um, but uh, we're not actually seeing that uh, occurring due to the passive tension, because there isn't enough passive tension to create a increase in sarcoplasmic series.
0: Yeah, and that will lead us into a nice segue for the the 2017 Go Go uh, the goto study um, that looked at the. This is another favorite of mine because it also is a very good neuromechanical matching study. Uh, the partial range of motion. This kind of kills the whole. You got to train with a full range of motion for every muscle. Needs a full range of motion. This kind of kills that argument too, and lines up again. If you understand neural mechanical matching, this is the GoTo study. Did a partial range of motion with I think it was a skull crusher, right? Like a prone tricep extension. So they did basically uh, a full range, or they did a it's a ninety degrees to one hundred thirty-five degrees. So kind of that bottom range, right? Uh, I sometimes they flip flop these, and I think this is one of these they did that on, isn't it? No, it's not, because they did no from okay they did not so they did uh, the prone tricep extension from the flex, so it's ninety degrees, one thirty five. Yep, yep. They did that bottom half, and then they did the prone tricep extension from the from the forty five to ninety. Um, Yep, and so and then in the forty five to ninety there was far greater hypertrophy. I think it was pretty significant
1: numerically very very different I think it was almost double um which is is you know very very surprising but fundamentally what we're dealing with here is is definitely not seeing stretch mediated hypertrophy um you know whether there's something else going on there with it's most likely just the region of the muscle being measured you know obviously uh different ranges of motion are going to cause different regions of the muscles to be most strongly activated there's definitely uh, some um moment arm data showing that proximal and distal parts of the uh, median lateral heads, certainly will grow differently or they expect it to grow differently according to slightly different ranges of motion. So I think really what we're just seeing here is is a difference in the region of the of the of the triceps uh, tending to grow at different um, uh, muscle lengths.
0: What I, I do think this possibly shows as well is because they were only doing that 90 degrees to 45. So it's kind of in that you know, kind of what they call that like constant tension bodybuilders use kind of that pumpy motion is that when you're doing a full range of motion, um, tricep extension, um, the lateral medial head have better leverage at that full elbow lockout because you're getting closer to like locking out the elbow. And that I think if you're failing before that, then you're not uh, loading them as significantly as if you kind of keep it in that range of motion where they have their best leverage. So that's kind of why I was saying I feel like this one is another good example of neuromechanical matching occurring because um, that kind of in a skull crusher, we're using that kind of um, that 90 degrees uh, of shoulder flexion position and you're doing elbow flexion there. It's going to be a lot of medial lateral tricep. And then if you're just keeping it in that range and they did do this, they overloaded it in that range in that top half range. Then I think what's happening is, is they're probably just overloading them where they have quite better leverage than they do with that more flexed elbow position.
1: Yeah, I mean, I I don't really have any other kind of suggestions for what could be explained in the results other than just neuromechanical matching, moving activation around between different parts of the triceps, whether it's between and lateral and long, or whether it's between the proximal and distal parts of each uh, individual head. I don't think it's easy to kind of uh, identify it based on the data that that we've got, but certainly that would be the only explanation that I could come up with for why we might see one particular measurement displaying uh you know, sort of uh, a great type of tree after one particular exercise in this particular context. Yeah.
0: And so then we have 28 to a year later, we had the Strasanask Nasi, and Okay. So this is. This one lines up really well with the 95 study, right? They did me- fast-link measurements, except that this time they included a different shoulder position. Uh, and they did fast-link measurements um, and they trained the the, the tricep, the, 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 or the, the tricep, tricep rocky The long head, they measured muscle thickness and fast-link. So this also, again, this was a six-week study. I don't know why people don't, there's been some people have tried to make up stuff about the study because I guess it didn't get the, the outcome that they wanted but basically this was another one where the tricep long head uh fascicle link did not really increase over the six weeks i I think it 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 was like if it did it was it was was statistically insignificant again And this is over six weeks where again the reason why we bring these timelines up is because all in all the studies where we see the muscle architecture where they should experience stretch mediated hypertrophy those fascicle length increases go very quickly. They happen very quickly. So when people say it's not a long enough study at six weeks, that's just not true compared to all the other studies that we have that look at fascicle length measurements.
1: Absolutely, as we were saying earlier, you know, fascicle length increases are gonna be very, very apparent within two, three, four, five weeks. It's not uh, like um, cross-sectional area increases where you might have to wait six to eight weeks to see something changing. Absolutely not. It's a super, super fast adaption. Very, very well documented. I don't think there's any uh, kind of uh, sort of reason to suspect that uh, six weeks is not long enough to create a fast length increase.
0: Yeah, well, we have one in 14 and have one in six. Um, and neither one of these studies did we see any significant degrees of fast length increasement. Um, so, like I said, comparatively in all of the studies where we look at it, lower body, uh, musculature, which we know has a leak attention relationship that benefits from stretch media hypertrophy, they run up real fast, plateau off, somewhere between five to seven or eight weeks or so. So a six-week study is still long enough to see if there's gonna be a, a an increase there. And we didn't see that one in this one either. And I want to say this one, um, I want to say that the it was it was actually trained, it was trained women in this one. I believe this uh that that's what this one was for. The subject wise, but I'm again, I'm drawing off memory, but I think that's right. Um,
1: I think that one of the things that jumped out to me about this particular study is that there was an increase in distal region. Uh, kind of uh, muscle size despite there not being any increase in fascicle length. I think really that's one of those great indications that we can't use distal region hypertrophy as a proxy for stretch mediated hypertrophy occurring through sarcomerogenesis because it's clearly not because we can clearly get an increase in distal region size without an increase in fascicle length. So uh, to, again, just kind of- Two completely,
0: there, there, while again, while- most of the time, we do see distal region increases when there is uh, fascicle length. It's not always, it's not 100%. Like I said, here we saw no, in, in, no. in fact, neither one of those. I think we saw no increased fascicle length in the distal, um, or maybe just this one we saw the distal increases. But we've seen that in several studies that you noted where there's no increase in, in fascicle. Um, length but there is an increase in hypertrophy in the distal region so not always an indicator can't really always go by that one it is usually a sign but it's not every time um and that leads us to the last one which I'm so glad I finally can get you on record to talk about this because um it's, it's the, the 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 Mao study that this is the one that came out um last year and um had everybody say well, that that solidifies that the triceps grow from to hypertrophy. But what is wild about people saying that is that isn't even what the title of the study says. It says the triceps grow better from an overhead shoulder position because not even in the actual study do they ever say they could explain the results from this because of a longer muscle length. even then, they themselves stayed away from it.
1: <laughs> That's because... <laughs>
0: Okay, so here, this is a good study because I heard, all right, in the overhead position, here, here's here's there's so many things about this one that we have talked about. I'll I'll cover we can this would be a great way to wrap this one, this whole thing up. In the overhead position, they saw more growth in the lateral and medial head. Now, the interesting thing about that is they're not lengthened in that overhead position. Those are monoarticulate muscles that are not lengthened. In that in an overhead position it doesn't really do anything to their leg. But they saw more muscle growth and the lateral meteor head. So the whole paper is them trying to explain away how this may have even happened, that it happened for potential hypoxia, that it was, you know, because the arm's overhead. Um, I've heard all sorts of wild theories about this. Um, that comparatively um, because that's the thing that threw this whole thing off, right? Was that the lateral medial head grew exponentially more in that overhead position than in the um, anatomical shoulder position, the arm by your side. But the fact is they're not stretched. They're not lengthened in that overhead position. Now, some people have tried to explain away that the triceps long head has poor leverage in the overhead position, which is true, right? When you get the arm overhead because it crosses the shoulder, which would explain, I know we're going to go, which would explain and say, okay, well, that's neuromechanical matching. But it also comes back to the fact is That, the long head, you can't have it both ways. You can't have your cake and eat it too. The long head has poor leverage in the overhead position. Then we also, as we explained before, would not expect it to see the amount of significant hypertrophy that it saw in that overhead position because of the poor leverage. So you can't have it both ways. You can't say that the the, the medial lateral head had to do more work because the long head is disadvantaged there. And then also say the long head, more because I'm saying if it's disadvantaged, that means that it would have uh, a down-regulated amount of active fibers, which means it wouldn't have experienced the most passive tension. So you can't have it both ways.
1: And that's the critical thing because people kind of who've have maybe had some uh, kind of uh, exposure to the idea of neuro matching will notice that the long head has poor leverage in the overhead position. And the median lateral hands have better leverage in the overhead position as a result. So they go, Okay, well, so maybe it's that the greater leverage allows the median lateral heads to be more activated, therefore they're getting the benefit of the overhead position. Okay, uh, but then they go, Oh, yeah, but the long head's getting a better response because it's stretched in the overhead position. And as you say, you can't have that situation because the long head isn't uh, benefiting from stretch, it's benefiting from stretch uh, sorry activation in a stretched position so it's the activation is necessary you can't say that um the you know sort of neuromechanical matching is benefiting the median lateral heads but the stretch position is benefiting the long head. that's nonsense because you actually need to activate the muscle in the stretch position so if the if you're if we're accepting that neuromechanical matching is telling us that median lateral heads have the best leverage in the overhead position then we should get a much reduced level of long head hypertrophy irrespective of whether or not it is being, uh, you know, experiencing uh, that kind of stretch mediate hypertrophy. So uh, fundamentally what we're seeing here is something that we can't currently explain. And I think uh, essentially that's why when we talk about it, what we're saying is that the overhead position, you know, caused greater hypertrophy than the than, than, than the other position. Well. Finding out why that happened, I think is going to be a task and, and potentially is going to take another couple of studies for them to figure that mechanism out. Because at the moment, I don't think we can explain what the, uh, the you know, I don't think we can explain what the results of that study are actually telling us.
0: I i have seen it hypothesized and I think it's a decent theory is that the um, the way they set the cables up to um, the position of the elbow might have given the overhead one a more favorable Uh, resistance profile, whereas the other one may have had an unfavorable resistance profile where the triceps uh, weren't having to work as hard uh, to extend the elbow. So if the the cable was set up in a way that it was very perpendicular uh, to the elbow joint in the overhead position, that's going to be a better resistance profile for the triceps, whereas if it's set up where it's it's basically not ever very 90-degree-ish in the in the um in the other one but i don't um that was one of the theories i saw postulated here's the issue with that when you actually look at the way they said i know you're laughing when they said when you actually look at the pictures they did provide it would have been the same resistance profile too so it's
1: and actually i don't even think it matters because they actually measured muscle volume. So, given that they're measuring muscle volume of the entirety of the triceps, medial, lateral, and long heads, there's no problem uh, with moving, um, you know, kind of sort of hypertrophy around between different parts of the uh, elbow extensor complex, we're gonna capture everything. So uh, neuromechanical matching doesn't really cause a problem in respect to the measurement method because we're capturing, or they're capturing absolutely everything. So uh, if we change the resistance profile, all that's gonna happen is a different region is gonna get uh, kind of loaded more than than one one other particular region. So we're gonna see differences in uh, region hypertrophy, which can be a problem if we're only taking one kind of measurement like at 50, 60 or 70%. Yes, absolutely huge problem in that scenario. But if we're not doing that, which they're not, then we don't have that problem. And ultimately, you know, the hypertrophy is going to be the same in totality, regardless of the resistance profile, um, you know, uh, with the exceptions that we talked about in terms of strict meaning to hypertrophy occurring. Um, so I don't really think it matters. I don't think that, that hypothesis can, can fly. I mean, you and I have been up and down this study so many times. And ultimately, where we are is that we can't explain it at the moment um we don't know what caused the great hypertrophy in the area of position that's why you know i'm saying i think there needs to be a follow-up to try and figure out what's going on because it's really interesting but it's definitely not telling us what people on the internet are tend tending to think it's telling us
0: i i think that is our distinction is that maybe the study is well done when i first saw it and i said to you i said i just think that the um um what is it I can't uh, think of it. The MRI, I said. I think the MRI is is bad or wrong or something. I said. I think there's there's something or that they didn't account for uh, some of the edema to subside. That's what I was. Tell you. So I think they didn't account for some of the swell, muscle swelling to subside. I said. I, I just think there's something that looks very different about these. But but coming back to what we're really saying is the cut, the study could really be well done. What our thing is, is that we're actually kind of more or less the only people agreeing with the researchers. We're saying what it doesn't show. It doesn't show that the t- triceps benefited from a longer muscle length. Uh, that's why they end up titling it that the triceps grow better from an overhead position, which that's also not really necessarily true because the, the other study there referenced there uh, from 2018, uh, Strani Nakiak, straniot- I can never say that word, uh, showed equal amounts of hypertrophy outcomes from. Um, a anatomical neutral shoulder position with a push down, comparative to an overhead position. Um, so it's one of those mystery studies. I think what, we'll, what we where we disagree with the rest of the the way people kind of present the study is that we we don't agree, and the researchers don't even say that because they didn't put it in the title that it shows that the triceps grow from a better from a longer muscle because it doesn't show that.
1: Uh, no absolutely not because clearly the median lateral heads aren't at a longer muscle length when they're experiencing that greater growth from the overhead uh, positions <laughs> so it would be kind of like sort of picking and choosing which result you wanted to highlight if you were saying, if you were saying that they're growing better at the longer muscle length but it definitely uh, kind of uh, I think the choice of title was definitely a very very good one um, and yeah it just it's asking for a follow-up because it's a fascinating result and really needs exploring but uh, I think really the critical thing that we are trying to sort of emphasize here is that um, it's not possible to use principally mechanical matching on the one hand to explain the median lateral head uh, result and then use stretch to explain the long head result. That is impossible because that's not the way that stretch works. Uh, the, the muscle has to be activated to experience stretch, therefore it's subordinate to the principle of neuromechanical matching, and and really once you understand that, then it becomes a very very difficult uh, result to explain, and that's why I'm saying it's a really fascinating one that needs uh, kind of a follow up. But at the moment, I think really where we are with the triceps is that you know fascicle lengths aren't increasing. After, you know, stretch position training, uh, we've got, you know, sort of a couple of studies showing that, um, you know, hypertrophy is, is, is probably similar after different uh, sort of uh, muscle length training. And, you know, yes, we've got this most recent study, which is showing something, um, you know, kind of that potentially could indicate that the long head may be able to experience stretch mediated hypertrophy. But equally, it's not um, a slam dunk. It's absolutely not because of the median lateral head results, uh, you know, also being greater in the overhead position. So overall, I think, you know, we could say the same thing. The triceps, as we said, for the biceps, is that overall the the picture is telling us that they probably don't experience, um, you know, stretch mediated hypertrophy in the strict sense of the term. Um, You know, does that mean we're not going to train them in a uh, kind of an elbow extended, uh, you know, (laughs) position or whatever else it may be? Well, that's a separate question because that's about the principle of mechanical matching, really.
0: Yeah, and I, I think that right now, collected actually the collected body of evidence for the biceps and triceps, which is it, it's pretty. It's not. I wouldn't say it's significant, but it's we have a fair amount. And then we have we didn't even really cover all of the studies that we have. We have a fair amount of studies that have actually measured the work sarcopenia length for the biceps and triceps too. And one that has been used out there um, is actually measured the. Um, was a normalized fiber length. And then it's kind of guesstimates. You have to do, get in and do some math. And you told me when I sent you, when I sent you that study, you said you gotta do some math. I was like, well, I'm out. And and, and so, because uh, you're actually pretty good at math. And I was like, I'm not doing any mathematical equations, Chris. I say, just tell me if these dark lines here, that's telling you where kind of the plateau is occurring. And you see you laughing. So, uh, and you're like, yeah, that's what they're saying there. And I well, according to the normalized fascicle, the normalized fiber length on those, the biceps, I think it says they get to 1.25. I don't think that's what it was. And that would be right at the kind of the edge of the descending limb. But then we have actual studies that measure the working sarcomere length. So the biceps don't get anywhere really close to it. And that comes back to what we addressed earlier in the link to tissue relationship. We need a working sarcomere length that gets to the, gets into the descending limb.
1: Yeah, absolutely, because ultimately it's the sarcoma length that determines, um, you know, or the maximum sarcoma length that determines how much titans, uh stiff segment gets stretched, and that's the determinant of passive tension, which is obviously the determinant of the sarcoma genesis. So, you know, a very, very simple kind of model, but I think um, very valuable for um, predicting uh, or explaining a lot of the results of the studies that we're looking at. So, you know, generally speaking, yeah, I think across the literature, what we're saying here is that we're not really uh, seeing uh, a strong indication that biceps and triceps are experiencing stretch media type um, Does that mean they're going to grow differently at different uh, joint angles? Yeah, absolutely. Because of the principle of mechanical matching. But um, that's a separate question. When we're talking about stretch media type HIV, we're talking about the additional muscle growth that occurs due to sarcomerogenesis on top of the myoflavone issue.
0: Wow, it's kind of as we have talked this out, even though we've said all of this in the exact same language. That is that is a, a really much better way that we should be looking at longitudinal hypertrophy studies, is as we talked about, do i do the biceps grow better at a more extended elbow position to somewhere around 70 to 90 percent of a flexed elbow position? Yes, that's where you want to look the bicep barocopy growth in best. That does not imply Stretch-mediated hypertrophy. That implies that they grow best where they have the best leverage. That is the concept of neuromechanical matching. With the triceps, we actually, like I said, we can see some of that going on here too. Is that where we we see triceps growth? Because uh, in one study, it showed that the tricep, the long head, grew very equally from an overhead position to, uh, I think it was, to the extended shoulder position. Um, so there's the we also have, um, where I was going to go back to, to that one was we, we didn't cover that. We have, I think, is it Garner? Garner also did the uh, working sarcomere links for the triceps too. There's a few There's a few for triceps too, and there's absolutely no way the triceps make it to the descending limb. They're pretty, actually, just on the plateau. They're all just the the medial, and in, in all middle of the middle, there's multiple ones. They all find very similar working sarcomere links. They don't make it to the descending limb. So if you're, yeah, if you're using this architecture, you would never suspect. You'd have to look at something different than the triceps going on from stretch-mediated hypertrophy. Nope, this is nobody can see. You're you're, <laughs> you're acknowledging that, right, Chris? Like there has no, to
1: be. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we, um, yeah. We
0: have to have better measurements essentially in these studies that we have to measure fast fascicle length, cross-sectional area, muscle thickness. In other words, it just needs to be more encompassing
1: yeah i mean i think uh, as we were saying before fascicle length increases are just so valuable for our understanding of this area because of the uh, you know the fact that they reflect most likely reflect psychomerogenesis. Uh, i think um, i think it's a great uh, disadvantage if uh, if we uh, if we don't have those measurements as well except that it's obviously a lot of extra work but um, you know that's just going to make such a big difference to our ability to understand this area if we have those measurements
0: it would actually be better if they used um, fewer subjects in a study and did a lot of measurements. And we had a multitude of those pile up over time rather than trying to say have like 40 or 50 people and then just like a muscle thickness kind of bland overall measurement. Oh, well, the muscle got bigger. Well, that, that doesn't really tell us anything, bro. That doesn't tell us, you know, like, you know, what's really going on at the at the fiber level. So to to wrap this up, which um, I, I think has been really good. I, I hope, number one, like that we, we've kind of done a good job of conveying that, number one, not all muscles are gonna grow, despite the fact that it keeps getting repeated, that muscles, there's a building body of evidence to show the muscles grow longer muscle length. That's not really what the building body of evidence is showing. Some of it is showing that some muscles do grow better from longer muscle length, and other methodologies they've used in these studies show nothing more than the principle of nerve mechanical mashing, right? Absolutely. Okay, and so the other thing people can say, well, well what muscles do, what muscles do go better than lower muscle length? Well, the, if we're, we're, we're looking at both of the research that has been done for longitudinal hypertrophy studies and we kind of look at the muscle architecture, the working sarcomere links that have been measured uh, across these, um, they're kind of the ones we know, the low, most of the lower body ones. Uh, if we start really start from the castle and up the gastroc, is kind of a unique one in all of these in that it actually works almost entirely on the ascending limb um, and barely reaches the the plateau. There are some variances in there, Um, but the point is it can really only get significant growth from a stretch position.
1: Which is a really fascinating problem because basically um, that is going to look like it's displaying stretch-mediated hypertrophy. But unless we measured fascicle lengths, we wouldn't actually know whether that was true. So this is a really, really fundamental reason. Another fundamental reason why uh, taking fascicle length measurements is so critical because yeah, absolutely. Somebody could go ahead and measure gastroc uh, increase, uh, gastroc uh, sort of hypertrophy after two different training programs, one stretch position, one contract position, and they could end up looking at it and go, hey, look, the gastroc grows after a stretch position, therefore it's stretch-mediated hypertrophy. And I'm like, well, no, it's not because what you're doing is you've actually got active insufficiency in the short position, because it is actually working on the ascending limb for pretty much the entirety of its range of motion, which is highly unusual, as you were just saying. And therefore, you're going to get this result that actually isn't telling you what you think it's telling you, because what you haven't done is actually create your hypothesis, your model in the first place, potentially, uh, that explains what you're likely to see when you uh, actually do the experiment. So I think really physiology is just so critical for uh, understanding the results we're getting, because there can be so many scenarios in which the result... Comes out in one particular way, and actually is open to different interpretations, and therefore having a model really clear before we set out on that actual experiment is so is so important.
0: Yep, I was um, I was going to bring the CAS up over the way we close out, but the gas track is such a unique one, um, different from the others in that the research that we do have us look at the working sarcosuchus shows they're just mainly on the ascending limb, which is really wild, right? Because that's, we don't really, we've never seen that. We don't see that in really any other muscles. And I also think the interesting thing about that is that probably explains more why people have trouble growing their calves because the only way to really grow the calves is to load them in that stretch position for an for extended periods, which we saw with the stretching uh, study, right? Where they actually put them in the boot and they actually had them in a, um, a dorsiflex position for like an hour, was it like an hour a day?
1: It was a very long time, yeah. Definitely. It was
0: like an I think it was like an hour a day. And yeah. I I I guess some people if if they're listening to this, go get you some boots like that and put put them on your calves for an hour a day. You'll probably get some some calf growth out of that. But the, the interesting thing about that is is that the way most people train their calves is to either do those bouncy reps where they don't spend any significant amount of time in that stretch position, um, or they hold the top. You know, for two seconds or three seconds when there's just not really anything going on. So there's kind of only one way to get a good growth response out of the calves, and that's in that stretch position. However, as you said, this is a really important um, uh, point to note here is that that's not indicative of stretch mediated hypertrophy. It's just because they don't experience sufficient force or tension in that shortened position. So the only place they actually get any tension is in that stretch position
1: yeah and it's always just active mechanical tension that we're talking about in that scenario we're just saying oh yeah are experiencing insufficient active mechanical tension in the short position. So they're not going to grow as much. They're experiencing sufficient active mechanical tension in the uh, stretch position, therefore they will grow. Uh, but there's no probably no passive tension, probably no passive tension in that scenario um, because we're not getting anywhere close to the sending limb. So ultimately again, unless fascicle lengths are measured, we wouldn't really know uh, whether that was uh, you know, passive or active mechanical tension that was creating the hypertrophy. So we wouldn't know whether it was stretch mediated hypertrophy or not
0: but that i think that would also explain all the um, asparagus calves out there right because if they if the calves don't left that i think that's why people always talk about they can't grow calves because think about it if, if they reach to the descending limb or just on the plateau it would be super easy to grow calves right like it would not be very difficult to grow calves but most people have trouble growing calves and i think that's because they do well i think number one people don't spend a lot of time Uh, really trying to grow their calves. I think they do a couple of sets at the end of a workout and then say, my calves won't grow. But then they just also don't try them where they they can experience uh, enough tension to grow. So the calves, number one, I think probably if you're going to grow your calves, you're going to have to spend some time in that stretch position, loading in that stretch position. The other muscles, what are the muscles do you feel pretty confident about? If we're working our way from the calves on up, then you feel pretty confident saying, yeah, these are going to experience stretch me hypertrophy.
1: Well, um, I mean, when we say just if we de- de- determine our or define our terms here, when we say um, are going to experience stretch medi- mediator, basically, what we mean here is that they are capable of that. We don't mean that um, that the principle of new matching, because sometimes the principle of new matching is going to make it very difficult for them to experience it. But you know, theoretically, I would say that. Um, you know, quads, hamstrings and uh, glutes are absolutely, definitely capable of experiencing stretch mediated mediated hypertrophy. I think the glutes are going to be difficult once, you know, kind of get out of that beginner phase because, um, you know, they're going to be very difficult to activate in the stretch position. But fundamentally, I think they do have a descending limb. That's really what we're saying. Um, and I think really, um, you know, the rest of the body is kind of um, probably sort of a bit of a grey area. I mean, obviously, we've talked about biceps and triceps definitely not having a descending limb, really. Um, I think, really, the rest of the upper body is kind of like maybe quite close to the edge of the descending limb. Maybe some muscles might just about experience a little bit. Some muscles probably don't. Um, I think of all of the upper body muscles, the one I'm I'm kind of most confident about probably will experience some stretch peniates, hypertrophy, is the pecs. I think they probably do. I think the rest of them are probably very borderline at best um it's just very difficult really because the d- data isn't amazing but you know i think really when we're talking about stretch media i've heard people really saying you know it's it's, it's the uh the hamstrings uh, quadriceps and glutes and then uh you know the pecs probably those are the ones i would say you know they're the solid uh, kind of uh, definite options for us to to cause stretch stretch-mediated hypertrophy but ultimately you know really is that saying that we wouldn't train other muscles in uh, kind of uh, sort of stretch positions well no because the principle of neuromechanical matching may tell us that that may be the best place to train those muscles just yeah. because uh, you know like the adductor magnus does it matter whether the adductor magnus experiences stretch mediated hypertrophy or not no absolutely not because we've got to train it in a stretch position because that's the only place it has leverage so I think really it's it's a more complicated question than than most people realize. But yeah, in terms of the muscles that I think we can be relatively confident about, that's just the ones that I would say.
0: Yeah. And then I think uh, we can we can say going over this, it's it's the triceps almost assuredly do not experience. We have, like I said, we have a couple of studies that look fascicle length. And we I think we can we can not a nail in the coffin. did that last study over again with fascicle link measurements, I think we'd probably be nail in the coffin, but I think you'd say the triceps probably do much better with mid-range movements and they, they do well with sh- even short position movements um, because they, they're they not going to experience active insufficiency. So the triceps probably don't experience it. Um, I think that, it, what is it? The I have a list and I think the, the, some of them, as you said, simply from the fact of either neuromechanical matching or it's just not practical. So even if, for example, the middle delts uh, benefited from stretch period hypertrophy, there's no way really you can do the whole, get your arm behind you and do all that stuff. They don't really get overly lengthened. I think comparatively uh, whether your arms in front of you, behind you, um, if you want to load some of those, for example, here's actually the middle of a great example, right? They, they tend to suffer what well, we can tell from active insufficiency, but they have their greatest leverage at somewhere around below 80 degrees um, of of abduction, right? So when we look like at neuro, neuromechanical ma- matching in terms of the frontal plane or sagittal plane, that's all we have to do is kind of load it where, where does this muscle have great leverage? And if I load it there, that's where we're going to get a lot of growth out of it. So if you look at something like the Middle delts, people are like, well, does it benefit from such media hypertrophy? I'm like, it doesn't really matter because number one, you can't really get an overly, unless you become, was it translucent or transparent or whatever, Dr. Manhattan, from the, the Watchman, and you get your arm to go through your body. There's...
1: You remember Dr. Manhattan, Big Blue Guy? I, I do. I'm just trying to think of the word that you're searching for. I,
0: use, I know. Like you pixelate yourself.
1: <laughs> I can't remember it now. It's, it's, uh,
0: it's, you know, you'd have to have it where you like, you know, could mesh your arm through your body and you could go like really like through your body to like really lengthen that metal delt. It's not going to happen. No one can do it. It's impossible. Like I said, you'd have to be Dr. Manhattan from The me. Maybe some other superhero. That's the first one I'd always think of whenever I bring that up. i say you have to have a wave for your arm go through your body, right? To leave your the actual shoulder stay intact. This is the most ridiculous part of the podcast so far, but it's funny. Um, but you'd have that be like you, I don't the whole part the whole point is there is I think there's ways you can focus on how do we, what is the most effective way to approach our hypertrophy programming. And that's in. sometimes we're going to have to look at neuromechanical matching and the resistance profile, right? Like where the peak forces occur in this joint angle range of motion, what's doing the most work there? So that's kind of one way to look at it. And then the other way to look at it is that if this muscle benefits from stretch to hypertrophy, remember, it comes back to something that we brought up that I don't think is talked about whenever this topic comes up, is that it's limited in adaptation. So if you're a very advanced person and you've been squatting for 10 years, you're not getting any more of those longitudinal adaptations. So the people are like, just keep squatting, bro. The whole, like, keep squatting right I'm like, okay, you can keep squatting to maintain the adaptations that you have, but you're the further squatting. Um, it's not going to, you know, increase those particular adaptations. Um, you'll get cross-sectional area improvements. You'll, you'll keep getting that, which is also something we did not bring up. I think it's important to know from a potential Filling out muscular potential, it's those cross-sectional area increases that have a much greater degree of overall potential that you keep building on rather than those longitudinal stretch media to adaptations.
1: Well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, as we were saying, you know, the increase in vascular um, length occurs for a very short period of time, it's months, you know, it's certainly not more than a year. So, you know, people are going to be increasing cross-sectional area for many years. So there's there's just a very, very clear difference in capacity for growth across the two different uh, types of, 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 of hypertrophy, which is why it's just so important to separate these two things out. And I think there's a it's a real problem when people just think of stretch mediated hypertrophy as extra hypertrophy, that's basically the same as what we would get normally. And it's not, it's it's a it's something different that occurs, you know, as an extra amount of muscle growth in certain conditions if those conditions are met
0: exactly and that also tells me stuff like well as we get more advanced and we really start to reach those upper limits of muscular potential right that something like um rather than like a squatting I think this is all anec. this is this part is anecdotal but I think it lines up here pretty well we've seen we over the last decade plus you know we've seen such a massive um um, popularity of stuff like glute thrust and bridges and things like that. And we see people with much, what I consider much better glute development than we saw for decades prior to that, who did lots of squatting and deadlifting and all that kind of stuff. Not saying those won't grow your glutes, clearly they will. But I think once somebody gets into those upper degrees of muscular development where they're, they're really finishing out that, that muscular potential, uh, something like a bridge or a thrust, thrust, that kind of stuff is going to really be, or should be your bread and butter in terms of like maximizing glute development comparatively to something like a squat or reverse lunge. Not saying you don't keep those things in your your program, you do, um, because you still have to maintain maintain those adaptations. But over the long haul, the cross-sectional area, which is going to occur from from the active mechanical tension that we're experiencing, generally in those mid-range to short positions, all depending on the muscle architecture, is where we're going to continue to get hypertrophy.
1: Yeah, I mean, basically, uh, when we're doing any exercise, we've got a limited amount of central motor command that we can use to create muscle activation. And um, the principle of neuromechanical matching is going to determine you know, what goes where. Um, so if we're doing a squat, then the octomagnus is always going to have more activation in the glute. It's never going to be really fully activated the glute in a squat, no matter what we do. Um, now, Basically, if we look at the hip thrust or glute bridge, it's the opposite way around. The glute is going to be the muscle that's most strongly activated. So it's just going to give us more capacity. It's accessing more motor units. It's going to give us more capacity for growth. I think really in the more advanced people, it's going to be very, very important because um, the more advanced we get, uh, the more likely it is that it's only the very... Top, um sort of muscle fibers in the sequence that are capable of growth because the others are basically plateaued already. So um, really, when we're talking about those situations, we really have to be focusing on exercises that give us a high level of activation of the target muscle, which is exactly what the glute bridge and the hip thrust do in the case of the glute.
0: Yep. So uh, finishing this up, I think that some of the ones that you're saying probably do in the upper body. So the lower body, I feel like we're, we're pretty clear. Most of the lower body is going to uh, outside the calves. So the adductors, the hamstrings, quads, the glutes, all that's going to benefit from longer muscle length and get stretch, be, stretch media hyper. And uh, the upper body, like you said, it's kind of a gray area. The pecs probably do. Um, the thoracic lats might. The fact is, as we, we talked about before, it doesn't necessarily matter that much because the fact is you're going to run out of leverage very quickly with that particular division of the lats. In the sagittal or frontal plane, um, we've got some old research, totally different topic that lines up pretty well with neuromechanical matching and lateral vision activation stuff. Um, the delts, um, again, I think that the anterior deltoid would be another one. This is a pretty funny one, but the fact is, there's uh, no real way to lengthen it. Um, and I have activation uh, when you get the arm behind the body, the anterior delts lengthen. But it's uh, it's if you look at the um, the actual origin to insertion there, uh, it's going to be right up next to, it's not going to have very much leverage. In fact, a lot of people don't know that as if you're doing flexion, the first zero to 90 degrees is a lot of clavicular pec, and it's not until you get above around 90 that the anterior delt kind of takes over. So there, there's not really much of a way to really load the anterior delt in that length of position necessarily. Not in like an active manner.
1: Yeah, and I mean, uh, as far as the data we've got, it, it really doesn't seem to go as far down the descending limb, uh, you know, as, as some of those uh, muscles like the quads do anyway. I mean, uh, I think really the problem is, or the, the situation rather, is that um, most of the of the really cool early physiological research tends to get done in the quads because just of, uh, you know, habit and practice and just generally that's what's done. And so I think, uh, unfortunately, in this particular instance, we picked a muscle that experiences stretch mediated hypertrophy very easily. And then we've kind of extrapolated that to the rest of the body and assumed that's what occurs. And I think really now we're struggling with the fact that it's not happening and trying to find out why it's not happening, I think. You know the model that we've discussed today is very, very powerful at explaining what's going on in terms of the data, um, and 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 that's why I think we're taking the position that we do on on some of these muscles like the biceps and triceps and saying it really don't experience stretch mediated hypertrophy as you know we are defining it here. Um, does that mean that you know we can make certain parts of them grow in um, you know kind of stretch positions? Well, yeah, absolutely, but that's neuromechanical matching, not um, stretch mediated hypertrophy.
0: Massive, massive difference there. And I think um, one of the things, like as we wrap this up, I think, we'd re- I think we'll I think cover this pretty well and kind of out- outline uh, what we should be looking for. And I think the main thing, if people want to get a couple of good takeaways from this is that when you're looking at um, any of the upcoming or, you know, any hypertrophy research that comes out, if somebody wants to claim that something grew better at a longer muscle length, very simple, just go and look and see if they did fascicle link measurements. That's that's kind of the, that's the thing we need to know. Uh, was there an increase in either fascicle links or, you know, sarcomeres in the series? We, we need, that's that's the actual real telltale sign that stretch mediated hypertrophy occurred. Um, and then if that isn't measured, and we're looking at something as uh, something like muscle thickness, we can't really tell that. Um, that's often said. And then what we just have to look at from there is the principle of neuromechanical matching and that they simply load a muscle where it has the best leverage. And then if they use muscle thickness and all they're telling us is, hey, this muscle grew where it had great leverage.
1: <laughs> Which we already would have missed. Which we
0: already know. So, so yeah. um, I think I think that's pretty much, uh, I think the other one I was gonna say is, I, I'll go over my list here because I have a list of, of kind of ones. Uh, the biceps, uh, the, they don't appear, from what we can have now, they don't appear to grow from stretch media to hypertrophy. Um, the brachialis doesn't. I think that you actually told me one time the brachial radialis actually does get to the deep, deep descending limb, but there's no real way to stretch it.
1: <laughs> well, you can't stretch it, you just can't stretch it. in an act, You can't activate it when it's stretched because it's not got any leverage in that length and position. So I think, yeah, the data t- seem to show that it does have the capacity to produce... Um, sort of passive tension, but it doesn't actually do that because it's not activated, which is actually a separate kind of hypothesis in and of itself, which maybe, you know, some muscles actually display a clear kind of operating sarcoma uh sort of uh, length range um, where they have descending limbs but they have those descending limbs because they've never really experienced any stimulus to change those descending limbs well (laughs) that's also um, i was gonna say that's
0: also as we said that's a really important concept people understand is that is that even if something when they measured it reaches to the descending limb once you create those training adaptations That that changes. So now there's less passive tension experienced by those muscles and those joint angle ranges of motion. So really, really important distinction that I I hope people take away from this is that once those adaptations occur, the amount of passive tension of the experience uh will be less than significant. Absolutely. Okay. So looking at traps, they don't traps don't appear to benefit uh from stretch media hypertrophy. Uh, like we said, the triceps um looks like the latch really don't maybe um the um the thoracic division um but again when we talk about the lats it's really important to note that we have a tremendous amount of evidence showing that they don't have good le- they don't have good leverage um in those upper degrees of humor elevation and that's mirrored across pretty much all the emg data very very consistently. so that's kind of uh, the modeling approach I think that you and I both talk about all the time when we look at these these studies and these longitudinal hypertrophy outcomes. Um, and you know that's I, I think if again people want to get a takeaway from that to understand without proper modeling, without uh, understanding muscle architecture and how this stuff works, you'll just end up saying what some abstract says and then you won't understand the mechanism behind why this happened. And kind of, a, you know, my and your conversation for the past many years now, anytime this stuff comes up because of the modeling and the mechanisms and that kind of stuff, we look at it and we go, well, this only happened because of this. And we, you know, generally, that has, has um, explained pretty much all of the studies that we've looked at now for a couple of years very, very well.
1: Yeah, I, I think you know it's it's been a model that's grown very slowly over a number of years, and it doesn't include. I don't think it includes anything that's that's unphysiological. I mean, everything that we're we we're, we're using to build the model is is completely rooted in the physiology that we we know, and is is very very uh, kind of um, well established um you know we're not creating models that are entirely theoretical and are very very rooted in the physiology and i think that's that's the strength of them um and yet yeah, they absolutely do they predict uh what we're seeing coming out um you know with the very very small exceptions here and there uh where we can't understand what's going on uh they uh, they definitely do do a very good job of that
0: i think once you understand the, the big picture the way the modeling pieces all fit together it's kind of like having a cheat code for studies because then you go and look at a study and you know you can just read the mechanisms they use for the study and then the outcomes they got, it, it always fits. I have yet to find a situation where it didn't fit perfect. For the most part, I mean, there's, like I said, the tricep study, that's a, a, a head scratcher because the reason why it's head scratcher is it doesn't fit with all the previous studies that have both the triceps or the arch detection. So that's why it's a head scratcher.
1: Yeah, which is actually a very exciting moment in in any research scenario because it suggests there's something that we've yet to learn. So that's why I'm saying it's but just really, really wants a follow-up to try and figure out what's going on.
0: Well, I think, like I said, I think we covered everything uh really well there. Um I, like I said, I hope people come away with uh, with some good information from this. Uh and you know, going forward, is that what we're gonna do? We're gonna use our podcast to kind of tap tackle these topics and and stuff that, that's getting debated. Um, for anybody that needs to find you, Chris, where are they going to go to find you? <laughs> we it. We'll do this on all of them, but like they should go to your Patreon, right?
1: Uh, Well, yes, I mean, um, obviously, we can do a link to some of the show notes, and I can put that on page and that's probably the easiest way to find me. Um, Although obviously, most people are going to know me from Instagram. So um, yeah, I mean, we can maybe put a link to uh, show notes. I will. I will. will,
0: Yep, I will absolutely find a way to get all all our links in there. But if you guys haven't
1: subscribed to Chris's
0: Patreon, um, I 100% recommend subscribing. He always has the most in depth uh, articles related to to this stuff uh and awesome uh first is it patrons where you do your infographics to all your infographics all your articles all that stuff
1: yeah um, so if anybody wants to find uh downloads of all my infographics they can find that on patreon
0: awesome um i also i have my groups that can be tra- be found on trained heroic where we actually put all of this this stuff into practical application for programming um, you can find both of us on Instagram. Uh, Chris goes by Chris Beardsley. I go by Paul Carter, but uh, you can find me under Liferon Bang One. I'm going to be changing that name soon. Uh, I started a long time ago. But it's, uh, it was, I used it because it was catchy. Um, and most people do remember, but uh, I'm going to go to a more, more mature, modern, modern name. So just like Coach Paul Carter or something, but uh, something basic. So, we're going to use that time to wrap this up. Chris, as always, I think this was uh, really, really good for our first one ever. Um, I think that we covered our bases uh, really well um, as far as this particular topic. And I hope everybody got uh, a lot out of it.
1: Fantastic. Thanks, Paul.
0: Thanks, bud. And for you guys, listening, we'll see you on the next one.